0: is blue You're thinking thinking the same thing I'm thinking. You heard from John Wilson this morning. Another dreary day in the forecast. December the 21st and counting since we've seen appreciable sun in these here parts. But hey, it's a new day. It's a new year. And what better time? What more beautiful day to mix things up a little bit. And no matter how dreary the weather may be outside, how can you not feel a little bit better with a little bit of that song from you 2 as we welcome you to the program for this third day of January 2024. It is Wednesday, by the way. If you're a sucker like me and you're back at work in this sort of pseudo holiday week, you're already at the hump because we had the New Year's Day holiday on Monday, so it's a four-day work week. We can ease back into things seven minutes after nine. And thank you very much for spending some of your time with us today. As always, lines of communication are open. You can email me, mike at 570news.com. On the socials, at Farwell underscore WR. That includes the Twitter or the X thing, whatever it is we're calling that now. Uh, Instagram is the same, at Farwell underscore WR. And our Facebook page for the show is facebook.com slash the Mike Farwell Show. And you can keep in touch with us there as well. Phone lines always open on this show, 519-570-2545, star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. Don't forget our new feature, the 12 o'clock talkback hour, which is open lines for you every single day on the show. So if you've ever wondered, how can I get in touch with that firewall guy? How can I have a conversation? How can I get something off my chest so the tens and tens of people listening to the show can also hear it? You can call between 12 and 1 or any other time at the phone numbers. I just shared with you. I wish I could start the show today with a little AM on AM in the AM. That would make it even more beautiful. But you know what? We'll take a 3-0 win, won't we?
1: His 30th career shutout, his second as a Leaf, and the third time he has whitewashed the Los Angeles Kings.
0: He being Martin Jones in goal for the Toronto Maple Leafs last night. And yes, when I say we will take... A 3 nothing win over the Los Angeles Kings. I mean, we Leafs fans, and we're all Leafs fans. Even if you don't think you're a Leafs fan, deep down, you are a Leafs fan. Austin Matthews on AM radio in the AM part of the day. We can't have the AM on the AM in the AM because Matthews did not score a goal last night. But that's okay. He still leads the league with 29 goals scored. And it was Willie Nylander who scored a couple for the Leafs in their victory Last night, but the story for me is the shutout and goal for Martin Jones. Uh, from shutouts to shoutouts, and we want to throw a little love in the direction of the KW Titans, who had their second game of the uh, the new Super League basketball season, and the KW Titans were winners over the London Lightning last night. And anytime, time, any team from this town is beating a team from that town, it's a good night indeed. So way to go, you Titans. Titans lost their home and season opener on Saturday to Sudbury, but they beat London last night, and like I said, it's always a good thing when you beat that team. And I'll tell you what, KW Titans, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal, I will do my best to help the Kitchener Rangers beat the Sudbury Wolves, to avenge that loss to the Sudbury Five, okay? (laughs) If the Sudbury Five are going to come into Kitchener and beat the Titans, we're going to send the Rangers into Sudbury to beat the Wolves on the weekend. We'll see what we can do about that. As we get underway for another day here on the show, uh, I'm going to call on my partner, the guy on the other side of the glass, uh, Devin Robertson, who told me yesterday, I don't mean to, you know, Air your dirty laundry, but you said yesterday you were in here basically working on vapors. Two hours of sleep you had from, I guess it would have been Monday going into Tuesday. Is that correct, sir?
2: Uh, yeah. I looked at the <laughs> clock. at f- I saw 4.09, and my alarm is for 6. So I, I closed my eyes. I'd been in bed at that point. I was trying to sleep. Sure. But I, the last time I looked at the clock, it was 4.09, and then the six a m alarm went off to go to work
0: i I had a day similar to that, uh New Year's Eve into new year's morning, and there was a it was around three thirty. I was like fully awake, and by about five, I was almost ready to just give up the ghost and then I managed to doze off again and got a little more sleep. So how did you do last night making up for the two hours the night before?
2: I was out by like five. And then the
0: alarm went off at six. Okay. So. <laughs> but now, here's, here's, I ask this with, with intent, my friend. How are you feeling today? Honestly? Yeah. Tired. Right? This is, I, <laughs> thank you. See, Devin and I did not plan this, but similar, uh, similarly to you, I, I got more than two hours Monday yep. into Tuesday, but I didn't get as much as I would have liked. And so last night, I feel so goofy admitting this. I'm a grown man. It was before nine o'clock. I said, I'm out. I'm tapping out. I'm tired. I'm old. (laughs) I'm going to go to bed. And so I got a solid, you know, my alarm goes off just after five. So I got a solid eight hours. And I feel more tired today than I did yesterday when I had about five (laughs) hours sleep. Like, why is this a thing? There's just no winning. We're trying to do the right thing here, aren't we? I, I would think. <laughs> That's what everyone tells me. So we've gotten more sleep than we've had in the past three days combined, and we feel more tired than we were yesterday. Yeah, no winning. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days, one of these days, we'll figure it out. All right, it's nine Let's get you caught up on five things you need to know for this day. One,
3: two, three, four, five, six, seven,
4: eight, nine,
0: ten. Ah, we won't go to ten. ten We'll just give you the five things, okay? I found this song randomly, but I love it. Like, how great is that little ditty called the counting song? Number one on the list of the five things you need to know today, the Waterloo Region District School Board is appealing an Ontario Superior Court decision to allow a defamation suit to move forward. Now, you might remember this. Retired teacher Carolyn Burjowski launching the $1.75 million defamation suit against the board after the board stopped her presentation about library materials last year. The original decision did not find any human rights code violations during the presentation, said such things, quote, should not happen in a democratic society, that being the presentation being stopped, and inferred that the chair of the WRDSB, quote, acted with malice or a reckless regard for the truth. Now, Carolyn Burjowski was also awarded $30,000 towards her legal costs, but now with the appeal, the case moves on to the Ontario Court of Appeals, and we'll see where it goes from there. Number two on the five things you need to know for today. The final tent that was part of an 18-month encampment on Roos Island at Kitchener's Victoria Park has been removed. The island now expected to partially reopen to the public because you know there's the fencing that's around it. We walked through the park over the holidays. So that fencing will come down at least partially reopening Gruce Island in the spring and then a full reopening sometime next summer at Victoria Park. Maybe in time for the alcohol consumption to be allowed in the park. Uh, number three on the five things that you need to know as we get this third day of January started, December was one of the warmest on record, averaging temperatures about four degrees above normal. And I don't need to remind you of that, right? You saw the green Christmas. I saw the green Christmas. And David Phillips, a senior climatologist with Environment Canada, joined us on the show yesterday to talk about that. And he was careful to remind us that he's not signing the death certificate for winter just yet.
1: We know January, February, they're the two coldest months in Kitchener-Waterloo. More than two-thirds of your annual snowfall occurs after January the 1st. And, uh, and similarly with the number of snow days. So, you know, I'd be charlatan to think that I was going to carry on the way it is.
0: And now, not only will we get two-thirds of the snow from now until whenever winter decides to end. But I don't know about you. I was a little surprised by that freezing drizzle I woke up to this morning. I had to scrape the car off. I always feel so guilty doing that, too. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning, and you're... And I can hear it echoing through the neighborhood. Like, my neighbors must hate me right now. Anyway, that idea that two-thirds of our snow is still to come this winter is, of course, music to the ears of Bill Creighton, who's the CEO at Chicopee Ski Club in Kitchener. And he has recognized something that we've talked about on the show. I mean, it's just an observation, but it seems that the seasons have shifted just a wee bit. And yeah, we may be getting a later start, but that means... If you're into the winter stuff, a kind of fantastic finish, according to Bill Creighton at Chicopee. For me, it seems like winter is shifting a little. We're getting started a little bit later, but March last year was our best March ever. We had snow the last two fresh snow the last
5: two weekends, and we were really busy. So it it uh, I'm not sure whether winter's just deciding to move a little more towards spring,
0: mm-hmm. but
5: uh, definitely there's there's
0: changes in the weather. I love you, Bill. I want the best for our friends at Chicopee, but ding dang it. If I have to start thinking about snow in March, but why should I complain? There's barely any snow here in January. By the way, that snowfall we got on New Year's Eve amounted, I'm told, to about seven centimeters. All right, number four on the list of five things you need to know for today. The Canadian Union of Public Employees says 41% of hospital workers it surveyed report dreading going into work and a similar number, around 40%, are thinking about leaving their job. Not exactly great news for our health care system in this province. And finally, of the five things you need to know today, the Professional Women's Hockey League continues to play in front of sold-out crowds, including a record of more than 8,300 last night in Ottawa. So great to see. And tonight, it is Kitchener native Lauren Gable's turn as Gable's Boston team hosts Minnesota.
6: Growing up, I said that I wanted to play in the NHL, and obviously that's not possible, but to now finally have a league, a professional league, to play in and play against best players in the world is truly amazing, and it's a huge honor to be able to play in this league and be able to play for Boston, and obviously a dream come true, and uh, can't wait.
0: Can't wait, Lauren Gable. We can't wait to watch her with Boston taking on Minnesota tonight in PW. HL action and those are the five things you need to know for this Wednesday, January the 3rd. It is 918. it's the Mike Farwell show on City News 570. so i'm driving home from oshawa on monday night new year's day with paul fixter who of course is my partner on kitchener rangers broadcasts we were coming back from the rangers 3-2 victory over the oshawa generals really good hockey game we really enjoyed ourselves at the rink on monday and we enjoyed the time that we had together in the vehicle to talk about all kinds of things mostly hockey of course but you know as we got back into town, so picture, if you will, uh, Highway 8, well, the 401, sorry, coming to Highway 8 westbound. Yeah, because we're going to get off, go past Sports World, Maple Grove, Maple Grove first, then Sports World. You know where we're going, come down over the Grand River, coming into town, right? So we're on the, the 401 uh, west, coming back from the Oshawa area and we're, we're getting off now at Highway 8. And did you know, like, are you aware of, because I think you really have to be aware, and admittedly, it is easier to spot at night, but did you know that there's a sign as you're making the turn around that bend, getting off the 401 onto Highway 8, now headed towards the Maple Grove and Sports World exits? There's a sign there, an illuminated sign, so it does get easier to see at night, welcoming you or telling you that you have arrived in Kitchener. And, and Paul and I got into a conversation about this as we drove past it on Monday night. And I reflected on that conversation yesterday after we had John Waylett on the show. John is heading up the newly formed Property Taxpayers Alliance here in the region.
1: Our mission is to advocate for the efficient and effective use of your hard-earned property tax dollars. And our goal is to
3: get property tax increases back in line with ability to pay.
0: So the effective and efficient use of your hard-earned tax dollars. And and what Paul and I noticed about that sign that I guess welcomes you to Kitchener as you're getting off the 401 and coming onto Highway 8 is that it's incredibly difficult to see like if you don't know it's there you might not notice it unless I've just gone past it too many times so I'm open to being corrected on this if you've actually noticed the sign but it's it's kind of buried down there it does stand out a little more at night with the way it's been lit but I've mentioned this before on the show and and I promise you I'm going to get back to the cost of this sign when it was first erected because I remember being a wee bit annoyed about it at the time, because I just didn't think it was a necessary expenditure. Now, this goes back many, many years, way before I was a full-time talk show host here on the radio station. And, And certainly, I think in better economic times, we weren't scrutinizing every nickel to the level that we're scrutinizing it today. Or maybe... We just don't scrutinize enough. I think that's why John and the Property Taxpayers Alliance has formed, hoping to get us more engaged in these things. But the sign initially annoyed me because I I just didn't understand the expenditure, particularly because when you're getting off Highway 401 onto Highway 8 there and the sign says Kitchener, you're not in Kitchener. Like, it's Cambridge. So... I mean, are we leasing the land from Cambridge to put the Kitchener sign on? I don't know. But I put it down, and we checked about this because we were driving past. Put the sign down along Highway 8 by the Grand River when you actually enter Kitchener city limits. And not only that, could you relocate it there? It would be much more visible there. Like, I just, I don't understand. I never did understand the purpose of the sign, certainly the location of the sign, because you're not in the city of Kitchener anyway? And bigger picture, is this an effective and efficient use of tax dollars? I know the ship has sailed, but it's it's the principle of it that I was reminded of yesterday in talking to John and in that conversation with Paul as we drove past the sign on Monday night and said, gosh darn it, it's not easy to see. And and that brings me around to uh, Ryder, the, the Grand River Transit mascot. I, I did look around and in fact... There are other transit mascots uh, in the world. Spain has one called Bussey. Uh In Grand Prairie, Alberta, they've got Roland, as in Roland, uh, Roland the bus. Uh, Metrolinx, of course, has its own mascot, a bear. Uh, the Metro in the UK has Skip. So, fine, I guess. I just wonder, I, I just wonder, what... Additional value these mascots bring to the transit system? And, and do we measure any sort of ROI, any cert, sort of return on investment of the transit mascot? I, I just find it to be a really curious time to introduce something that seems to me as frivolous as a transit mascot. I wonder if in the years following, Ryder, the Grand River transit mascot, Bunny, will be as visible or invisible as the sign that welcomes you to Kitchener, even though you're not yet in Kitchener as you get off the 401. These are the things that occupy my mind from time to time. We're going to get you an update from the City News Centre and then come back with a conversation about arts and culture funding in this community. I think we're woefully underfunded. I really do. And that, that may not align with what I was just talking about in terms of scrutinizing tax dollars. But I think we need to get more into arts and culture. We'll talk about it coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. As we await a connection with our guest here this morning, let's play a little game of did you know? Did you know that we used to have what was known as an arts council here in the region of Waterloo? In fact, our scheduled guest this morning, uh, Martin DeGroote, is the former executive director of that Waterloo Region Arts Council. And just as a sidebar, Because it's kind of funny, not necessarily funny haha, but apparently there's some $18,000 still sitting in an Arts Council account that nobody can really access because since the council was disbanded and and the charitable status was lost, I guess the money, I don't know, I I would love to know what happens with money like that. It kind of reminds me of Superman 3, sorry for the tangent here, but you remember when Richard Pryor's character... Superman three decided to go comedy for some reason anyway, uh, and he found all these like uh pennies when we still had them, left over from rounding in the uh, office where he worked, and he took all the pennies that were rounded either up or down and put them into his account and anyway, I don't know what happens with the eighteen thousand dollars, I think it's kind of interesting. point is that we did at one time have an arts council here in the region of Waterloo. And now, where we find ourselves is in the position of being the largest municipality in Ontario without an Arts Council. And this comes courtesy of the excellent reporting, Did You Know That Terry Pender, with the Waterloo Region Record, covers arts and covers them very well. Terry also uh, does a great job on tech, stories for the Waterloo Region record. So Martin DeGroot, who we're still trying to connect with at this moment, is the former executive director of what was known as the Waterloo Region Arts Council. We remain today the largest municipality in Ontario without an arts council. And as you know, arts funding is under some pretty serious threat. We had David Marskell, the CEO of the museum in downtown Kitchener. On with us just before the Christmas break, talking about the funding cuts when the region made the decision to reduce discretionary spending by 10%. But what we find now are a group of local arts and culture organizations that really, it's just a it's like a mishmash or a hodgepodge or whatever word it is you want to use. And they're all competing for some granting and, and some dollars, or they're just in this space trying to make a go of it on their very own. And, and we've made efforts in the past to kind of bring these organizations together under some sort of banner, There was at one time a group called the Alliance for a Grand Community that brought together organizations like the Art Gallery, the KW Symphony, the Center in the Square, for example. Then we had this thing known as the Prosperity Council, which was an economic development organization that was region-wide. And in 2010, it told us, so almost 15 years ago now, The Prosperity Council told us that arts and culture in this region were underfunded by up to $5 million annually compared to similar cities across the country. So from the Prosperity Council springs something that is very near and dear to my heart. It's called the Creative Enterprise, or I shouldn't say it is. It was called the Creative Enterprise Initiative. You know if you've listened to this show for even five minutes, that I am a big booster of arts and culture. I think they are underfunded. They have been chronically underfunded. And sure, I guess you could argue I have a bias in this regard. The job that I do is in the arts and culture industry. I cut my teeth in this quote-unquote industry, if you will, by getting involved in musical theater productions way back when I was in high school. So I've had the opportunity to be a part of productions like that, work on stages like The Center in the Square, etc. And I've loved every minute of it. I believe in the value it has brought to me personally, and I believe in the value that it brings to our community. When we are given the opportunity to be awed by a performance. Not odd O-D-D, but awed A-W-E-D. When we have this sense of awe and this sense of wonder because we're taking in live theater, live music, whatever the case may be, we are the better and the richer for it. I believe that sincerely. And so, yes, I have that leaning towards the Creative Enterprise Initiative and... My late uncle Roger was a tremendous supporter of this and had a leadership position within the Creative Enterprise Initiative. And I almost feel duty bound to carry that on in some way because the Creative Enterprise Initiative told us that a thriving arts and culture sector would be critical to attracting and retaining the kinds of workers we need in this community today and in the future we did get some increases to arts and culture funding thanks to the creative enterprise initiative but it just slowly disintegrated and then of course we had the recent budget whereby we saw cuts to our arts and culture funding so along with the idea of resurrecting an arts council here in the region what martin de groot would like to do is organize a large festival in this community of music and dance that would grow over the years to include theater, Six Nations, exhibitions at festival gatherings in the five cities along the Grand River watershed, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, and we're going to include Guelph and Brantford in that. And then what would be required to stage such a festival could become the foundation for a new group that would support and grow our arts sector in the region. That's the plan. I would love to explore it further with Martin, but in our inability to connect with him this morning, I can explore it with you and get your thoughts on this because I understand completely and I've heard the arguments and I get it. You know, I'll go back to what I was saying just before the 9.30 news And and I said to you before that break that my passionate support for increases to arts and culture funding may not align with what I was talking about before news saying, hey, we need effective and efficient uses of the hard-earned tax dollars that are collected in this community. But you see, this to me would be and effective and efficient use of tax dollars. Forget your transit mascots. Forget your signs that say, welcome to Kitchener when you're not even in Kitchener yet. That's wasteful. That's inefficient and ineffective, in my opinion. But I think the dollars that you invest as a community in arts and culture pay you back many times over in economic spinoff as well as in the intangible ways that you cannot necessarily put a dollar figure on. Just the ability for us to go and be awed and have that sense of wonder. But as I was saying, I understand the other side of that. When people say, listen, arts and culture can survive if it can survive, create the kind of programming that people want to see and or hear, and then you'll have a thriving arts and culture sector, right? If you give me good enough programming that I deem it worthy of the dollars I have in my pocket to spend, then there you go. Make the business model such that you can become a going concern from a business standpoint. And those that cannot survive in the sector then just fall by the wayside. completely understand that argument and it's a real dollars and cents logical point of view but what it overlooks i believe is the value that is derived from having these opportunities available in the community what they bring to our community the tourism that they can bring to the community etc so are we underfunded here I say absolutely yes. Was I disappointed that the region made these budget cuts? Hell yeah, I was disappointed that the region made these budget cuts. I think there are far more things that you can find to cut besides arts and culture. 519-570-2545, star 570-1800-570-5715. You tell me. Is arts and culture currently underfunded, or do you think we should just cut them all off and let them figure it out for themselves? May the strongest and best business cases survive. Or is there room for this to become what I believe it should be, and that is a public good? Let's talk about this being the public good that it is and fund it accordingly, because our communities are better off with these entertainment options embedded within them so you tell me what you think about where we're at with arts and culture funding and perhaps where we could be if we were to add to that funding again the number to reach us on the show 519-570-2545 star 570 -570 1-800-570-5715 this is the mike farwell show on city news 570 The one-time executive director of the Waterloo Region Arts Council thinks the council needs to be revived. We need to have some sort of umbrella organization here in the region of Waterloo that effectively can advocate for increased funding for the arts and culture sector. And by the way, the region of Waterloo is the largest municipality in Ontario without an arts council currently. So I think that just tells us pretty clearly how we view arts and culture in this community. And that to me personally is a shame. How do you feel about it though? Are we underfunding arts and culture? Like I believe we are. Like the Prosperity Council said 15 years ago, we were underfunding then by up to $5 million and we (laughs) haven't increased funding since. So arguably, given... Increasing costs, et cetera. We're probably underfunding the arts now by well over five million dollars. Five one nine five seventy twenty five forty five. Star five seventy one eight hundred five seventy fifty seven fifteen. Dylan, good morning. Good morning. Um I I think your uh, your your
7: topic is, is valid, the arguments are valid, but uh I, I think it's gonna fall on deaf ears right now. Um, just with our current economic, uh, situation, like we've got, uh, you know, people working full time, uh, that can't make rent and, and have to use the food bank. Uh, it's a tough sell, uh, to put any funding anywhere, uh, that isn't a necessity. Um, you know, like in in my fiscal house, I would love to have a seat at the opera, but currently my fiscal house is on fire. I'd rather put
0: the fire out. Yeah, Dylan, I get you. And that's so well put. It it really is. And, and I hear you and I feel you on that. And I guess what I'm saying is, like, I, I'm wondering which priorities, which higher priorities we have found to fund as opposed to this. Right. And that's where I'm starting to ask the question, like, because I, I believe there's value in funding the arts. So couldn't we have found some other lower priorities to eliminate and then get the funding be- into arts? I believe there's lots of uh,
7: lower priorities that need their funding cut. Um, we, as a as a population, we really have to start looking at at what's necessity uh, right now. Because uh, uh, while there's lots of people that are doing fine, uh, there's there's many, many, many more that aren't, and uh, we've got to we've got to look after the necessities first.
0: Yeah, I uh, appreciate the call, Dylan, and, and I totally get the fiscal house being on fire, and the point is so well taken. I mean, how many times have we talked about it on the show? Those folks that are working full-time, right, bringing in income, as Dylan points out, and still relying on services like the food bank to make ends meet. And by the way you'll remember that the Food Bank of Waterloo Region had a significant increase to its core funding from the region in order to meet the increasing demand. And I don't think many of us are going to argue that. I think it was Councillor Rob Deutschman who expressed it as getting such great bang for the buck, right? For every dollar that is donated to the Food Bank, two meals can be provided. Now, that used to be three meals per dollar, but... Here we are, but you can still get two meals for every dollar that's contributed to the Food Bank of Waterloo Region. So, yeah, that is an organization that is that is wringing tremendous value out of the dollars, the funding that it receives. But it begs the question, why is demand where it is? And, and honestly... Like, why are we okay with letting a service or an agency like the food bank fill the gap? Maybe because it can. Maybe because it's got the infrastructure there already. And I don't think any of us is going to argue with the funding increase provided to the food bank of Waterloo Region. But as Dylan says, there are probably multiple priorities. And look, Dylan's priorities are going to be different than my priorities, which are going to be different than your priorities and your sister's priorities. Right, We're all going to say, well, have have a different idea of where the funding is best placed. But I would argue to you or with you about the value, the, the strong value that we get from funding arts and culture. right? And maybe you don't need then money in your own financial house to go to the opera because like the art gallery here in the region, for example, it's free. I don't know. And what that looks like in the overall budget is something that would have to be analyzed. But I'm, I'm confident when I say that I could look at line items in our municipal budgets that I think could be either eliminated entirely or reduced in order to make more room for funding for the arts and culture sector. I don't think we take it seriously enough. I don't think we value it highly enough, but that's just my 10 cents on the issue, and I'm really sorry we couldn't connect with Martin DeGroote because he is much closer to it than I am. Connected to this, though, and and I can't help but wonder if this is ultimately, and and I think it is to some degree, in in many a community, ours included, uh, arts institutions rely on generous benefactors to provide necessary funding, right? Well, there is this organization called the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and annually it releases its list of the largest charitable donations from individuals or their foundations. Now, I'll grant you this is U.S.-based, but in 2023 the top charity donations totaled more than $3.5 billion the largest of the gifts is about half a billion dollars from who else but Warren Buffett who made the contribution to his late wife's foundation, Susan Thompson's, Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, uh, which is his own family's foundation for charitable giving, but a, a half billion dollar contribution from his own assets over to the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation. The co-founder of Nike, Phil Knight, made a $400 million pledge to charity last year. That was in third place. And in between Warren Buffett and Phil Knight and his wife, Penny, was a donation from James Simons, who's a mathematician and hedge fund founder. James and his wife, Marilyn, made a $500 million contribution through their foundation to the State University of New York to support the university's endowment and to boost scholarships, professorships, research, and clinical care. Those are some big, big numbers from the Chronicle of Philanthropy's annual list of the largest charitable donations stateside. And I I do think that we rely on those wealthy local benefactors to support arts and culture organizations in our community and in other communities across this province, across this country, really around North America, for sure. All right, we're approaching 10 o'clock, at which time we will get you an update from the City News Center. And then it, it was quite the year, wasn't it? In local gravel mining, aggregate extraction, gravel pits, to put it the way we are most familiar with it. And communities uh, in Wilmot, in North Dumfries were expressing opposition to gravel pits in their backyards, essentially. Well, there is an umbrella organization provincially that says the Ontario government is not only letting us down as residents, but it's letting down the environment by how much aggregate it is allowing to be extracted In Ontario. We'll talk about that coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Quite the year in the gravel pit department, wasn't it? I mean, if we go a way back, you'll remember that a gravel pit in Wilmot Township in the community of Shingletown, which residents thought they had successfully advocated against instead, uh, will be moving forward. There's also discussion about expanding what's known as the dance pit In North Dumfries, residents have raised their voices in opposition to that. And also in Wilmot Township, uh, near the community of Petersburg, there is a proposed sand pit on Snyder's Road that has, again, residents raising their voices in opposition. That's just a look at recent projects and recent Advocacy here in the region of Waterloo. These concerns extend well across the province, and that is why I submit to you we have an organization like the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition. The outreach manager for the coalition is Susan Lloyd Swale, who joins us for a conversation. Susan, good morning.
8: Good morning, Mike.
0: Can you share more information with us about the coalition? Who and and what is the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition?
8: Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition is, um, is a coalition of community groups who are defending their communities from harmful and unnecessary gravel mining. Our long-term goal is to win reform that uh, both changes regulations and legislation to safeguard health, water, nature, guarantee community participation and honor the treaties and obligations with First Nations. And um, we are supported um, by three part-time staff members, and I'm one of those staff members.
0: You have a campaign, the coalition does, called the mm-hmm. Dam campaign. What is that? The D-A-M-N campaign?
8: Yes. Um, Good acronym, by the oh, way, it, Susan. Isn't it a great <laughs> acronym? Yeah. <laughs> so that's our Demand, a Moratorium Now campaign. And it asks the province to implement a moratorium, so, which is basically to halt new gravel mining approvals until legislative reforms are implemented. And we are asking for reforms that increase the weight of local decision-making, which I think is very popular in your area, ensure long-term supply of a fi- finite resource uh, of aggregate through sustainable management, Reduce climate impacts and honor treaties and obligations with Indigenous nations. So that's basically what the dam campaign is. And we've gone out and, and got support for 20 different municipalities um, across, the, across Ontario that support this moratorium. And we're going to keep building on that as we go forward.
0: So, Susan, a friend of mine shared with me several weeks ago uh, information from the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition that Mm -hmm. pointed to a report from Ontario's Auditor General. And based on this report from the Auditor General, which was the value for money audit of the management of aggregate resources in the province, Mm -hmm. the coalition says this is really confirmation of your position that we, meet, we need a moratorium. Why do you say that?
8: Absolutely, because the gravel mining industry right now is authorized to extract 13 times more gravel every year than we use in Ontario, and it's from more than 6,000 existing gravel sites in Ontario. So the risk to communities and our well-being is unnecessary, as the Auditor General's report confirms. There is more than enough aggregate license to meet the needs of Ontario for a generation. And we find we, the findings of the audit to us are a vindication of the need to reform gravel mining in Ontario. <clears throat> and um, the Auditor General's report also found that the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry is falling short on balancing The competing roles of facilitating the extraction of aggregate resources and minimizing the impact of aggregate operations. This confirms the experience of many communities like Petersburg and North Dumfries that decisions about new new applications do not happen on on an even playing field. And the Auditor General's report also confirms our beliefs at the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition that there needs to be a moratorium, a temporary pause on new mining applications in order to basically reset the balance between gravel mining and protecting the health of communities and the environment. And we think implementing the 18 recommendations within the Auditor General's report is a good place to start.
0: You talk about those numbers, enough aggregate for a generation, extracting 13 times annually what is needed in the province. Can you put into context, Susan, what the impacts are of this overmining of aggregate?
8: Oh, absolutely. So aggregate mining, um, gravel mining, it permanently changes uh, the existing natural environment and causes numerous negative impacts to surrounding communities. It's not a benign activity. And the Auditor General's Value for Money Audit confirms the province's failure to protect the public from the significant negative impacts to our lives and the community that we live in. The audit confirmed aggregate mining can cause serious health impacts from air pollution and heavy truck traffic. It puts local groundwater at risk and it can destroy farmland, wetlands, and woodlands. Another climate impact that is less well-known to the public is the carbon emissions from producing concrete. If concrete were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases on Earth, only behind China and the United States. So on a, both a global scale and in local communities fighting these pits, the need to reform gravel mining has never been more urgent.
0: So I'm sure you are as aware as anyone, Susan, that there is a tremendous push to build more houses in this province, across this country. Mm -hmm. We need to get 1.5 million more homes in the province of Ontario in the next, well seven years by looking at the calendar now and yep. along with that of course with the houses themselves or whatever buildings they are uh, created in the the apartment units whatever they are there might be road infrastructure etc so how do we meet this demand for new housing and critical infrastructure without mm-hmm. additional aggregate Hmm.
8: well there's a lot of aggregate in the ground already it's a great question So our research and the Otter General's report notes that there is more than enough aggregate licensed already. So it's in the ground in licensed pits to meet Ontario's building needs for a generation. And as a finite natural resource, aggregate needs to be properly managed on a sustainable demand basis going forward. As pits are exhausted and rehabilitated, data-based management should be determining when new pits and quarries are needed. In the meantime, Ontario also needs to encourage recycling of aggregate. We don't need to continually use what they call virgin aggregate for new buildings and, and um, <clears throat> other uses. And we also need to support building practices building practices that reduce our reliance on aggregate like mass timber. And we are moving forward in this, in this way, but there are changes that need to occur too make uh, alternatives more attractive
0: i mentioned at, at the beginning of this conversation there have been several uh, high profile i guess uh, pit operations right here mm-hmm. in the region of waterloo there's the the hallman pit in shingletown which is in wilmot township there's that sand pit for petersburg also in wilmot township you made mm-hmm. reference as well, Susan, to the the expansion of that dance pit in North Dumfries, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what support has the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition provided, if any, to communities here in the region that are protesting, advota- advocating against these pits?
8: Yeah, we are actually quite active in the area because I, I live in Kitchener. <laughs> So I'm a neighbour. The Reform Gravel Mining Coalition supports communities defending themselves against the negative impacts of gravel mining. We really are a supportive network of communities. There is so much to learn when you first start challenging a pit. It's important to share and learn from each other, and that's what we do. Um, And so we help these community groups. In Waterloo Region specifically, we've assisted uh, Stop the Petersburg Sand Pit, a group of people who live near seven existing pits with sand dust affecting their lives on a daily basis. Um, The people living near these pits have written to the town of Wilmont describing how they can't open their windows in the summer or hang out laundry, they have to wash their cars more often, they can't eat outdoors, or they're literally eating sand dust. And the town of Wilmont has been asked by the stop, the Petersburg Sand Pit pit and RGMC member, to endorse and fund In their 2024 budget, an air quality study to benchmark what the particulate matter is in the surrounding area. While the municipality can't stop existing pits, and that's a frustration that a lot of community members feel, they can bring in policies to protect the health and well-being of the community. And we're very hopeful that Wilmont Council will support this important study to limit air emissions from pits, and we've been supporting the Petersburg community in moving that forward. In addition to Petersburg, RGMC has made deputations to North Dumfries Council, a community with an astounding 40 existing pits. So that's a lot of aggregate in the ground that uh, is ready available for building. Um, Last July, I made a deputation to North Dumfries Council, and at the meeting, Mayor Foxton noted that Minister Graydon Smith wants a study to show how much aggregate is taken out and how much is needed. So that's from the provincial level. <clears throat> which is good news. And she mentioned he needs data to counter Ford's directive to get as much aggregate out, of, out as you can. So it's our hope that the minister is committed to stopping the gravel rush, but we question whether the supply will be, whether this supply study is going to be comprehensive enough and not just based on voluntary information from industry. As the Auditor General says, we've had. Uh, already had issues with the quality of underlying data that the ministry currently uses, so we want to make sure that going forward it's, it's more uh, helpful data. Um, you know, residents in Waterloo Region and across Ontario face an overwhelming assault from the gravel mining industry, and the Ford government has made it increasingly difficult for them to be supported by the municipal councils. You've already talked about the Hallman pit. So, people in Wilmot are not only uh, fighting the Petersburg pit, but the Hallman pit had to raise money to hire a lawyer and defend their community. There's no intervener status funding available to assist communities. That's got to come out of their pockets, taxpayers' pockets. And to make matters worse, the provincial government introduced a clause in Bill 23 that would allow the Ontario Land Tribunal, which is an adjudicative body, to assign costs to losing parties, which makes councils even more reluctant to challenge these pits. So residents groups in Waterloo Region, excuse me, <clears throat> like across Ontario, are like a lonely David facing this massive army of Goliaths with very deep pockets. So it's, it's really a challenge for communities. And what we do is help them uh, uh, understand what they're facing and get an orientation for what it's going to be like. And if people want more information about the work that we do and the resources that we have available to them, uh, you can check out our website, reformgravelmining.ca, and we'd be happy to help them understand the complexities of fighting a gravel pit.
0: You know, it's it's interesting, Susan, when you talk about your deputation to North Thumfries Township and the number, the 40 aggregate pits that are there. I remember a conversation some years ago now with Mayor Foxton from North Dumfries, and she mm-hmm. described her township as the, the pothole capital of Ontario, with the potholes being, of course, those those aggregate pits. But she, right. I, I think, is, I, I don't know how much hope maybe or optimism you have from that with her being, Mayor Foxton, that is, being very vocal about, working with the province on this, because that's where the regulations need to change. The municipalities, yeah. and I think Wilmot's a great example, they're going to lose at the OLT, at the Ontario Land Tribunal, so the mm-hmm. the townships or the municipalities' hands are almost tied here.
8: They're almost tied, but they do have an authority to change policies and make things, uh, change policies to help protect the health and well-being of their community. So, like I said, Petersburg can bring in an air quality um, Daddy, we've got the town of, Cal- of um, Caledon that is currently looking at updating their policies as well. But, I mean, yeah, at the provincial level, it's really difficult because the province is obviously favoring industry over communities and the environment. The Auditor General's report points to that, the lack of inspections, the 74% increase in violations since 2018 indicates the government is, is tipping the scales in favor of industry. But this doesn't really deter us at our GMC. um the auditor general's report is uh really makes it clear that the province must pill the emergency brake. it's time to halt new approvals until it can guarantee public safety and put a sustainable management plan in place a moratorium like a temporary pause on new applications is really the common sense thing to do right now. And we're very grateful that Mayor Foxton and other uh, municipal leaders are speaking out and uh, really encouraging the province to take action and reform gravel mining. And we look forward to working together with municipalities and building uh, the pressure that's needed to get the government to take action.
0: Susan, I really appreciate you making time on the show today. Thank you very much for joining us.
8: Thank you, Mike, and have a wonderful day.
0: Thanks. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Susan Lloyd Swale is the Outreach Manager with the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition, and she certainly strikes an optimistic chord following the Auditor General's report, of course, following uh, comments from and an understanding by mayors like Sue Foxton and North Dumfries who say, hey, listen, there is a lot of aggregate currently being extracted and a lot more currently available. And I remember these conversations from Shingletown with the Holman pit where I'm going off the top of my head, but I want to say 80% of the available aggregate was still yet to be extracted when they're talking about creating the next pit already. And, and I'm just... Even if you don't go full on moratorium, I'm curious as to why there's not some sort of threshold. Once you get down to, say, thirty or twenty percent remaining aggregate, then let's activate the next pit. Now, I confess to knowing nothing about the industry, and you can always correct me on these things, but is twenty percent too low a threshold? Maybe we can figure out thirty or forty percent. I don't know right, how quickly that can be exhausted before you need, uh, the next supply. But to me, certainly when you're up around still 80% of available aggregate, surely to goodness, that's that's plenty of buffer before you need to create the next aggregate pit. This is a real tough one for me because we know how much we have grown, how much we intend on continuing to grow. And we sure as heck ain't going to build all the buildings and pave all the roads without the aggregate to get the job done. So I feel for these communities. I think we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place here, no pun intended considering what it is we're talking about. But as you know, your thoughts always welcome on the program. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570.
8: The Auditor General's Value for Money Audit confirms the province's failure to protect the public from the significant negative impacts to our lives and the community that we live in. The Audit confirmed aggregate mining can cause serious health impacts from air pollution and heavy truck traffic. It puts local groundwater at risk and it can destroy farmland, wetlands and woodlands.
0: Susan Lloyd Swale is the outreach manager with the Reform Gravel Mining Coalition. The advocacy continues. The ask is that the province place a moratorium on opening more gravel pits until we get what's contained in the Auditor General's reports and what some communities have been asking for, some measure of balance here. As I said before the break, I find it an incredibly difficult situation. We are growing. We do need the aggregate. There are communities impacted when we pursue that aggregate. Let's go to the phones and hear from you. Paul, good morning.
9: Morning. How are you doing
0: today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you?
9: Oh not bad. Not bad. Good. Um uh, I've raised this with you uh before. On these uh you know, aggregate mining, when they get a permit for it, part of the uh the requirements are remediation once the pit is closed. So what they do is they get the permit, they extract the easy gravel until they uh, get down to, they're always going to leave some in there because as long as they can say, oh, it's still an operating uh, pit, they don't have to do the remediation. Remediation costs money and the company maximizes profits by not doing the remediation. Uh, You leave it long enough, um, you know, you leave a, a couple of pieces of equipment there, maybe have a security walk through, uh, you know, once a day or something, and you say it's still an operating pit. And eventually, things will just uh, collapse in there or it'll get flooded. And then they say, oh, well, you know, it's flooded now, we can't do any remediation and just walk away from it. So as long as, like I said, the, the cost of the remediation, maybe the company should be required to pay that up front into a fund And then maybe they'll consider extracting all the gravel out of a pit instead of just taking part of it, the easy stuff, and then just abandoning it, walking away, and saving all that money on remediation.
0: That's a really interesting idea, Paul, and I appreciate the phone call. I'm going to try to squeeze one more in. Uh, Is this Cora? Yes. Good morning.
8: Good morning. I'd like to make a comment about the gravel pits. I I just wonder how many people realize that you can't go driving down a road and say, I'm going to have a gravel pit there, I'm going to have a sand pit here, I'm going to... you got to go where the material is. And what kind of buildings would we have, and how? what would the price be if we didn't have local material? So that is my comment.
0: Thank you, Cora. I appreciate that comment, and, and I hear you. You're right. It's not everywhere, right? You but And again, there are these communities that are impacted because they live in those aggregate rich areas i suppose i really think paul's proposal it's not the worst idea i've ever heard from paul (laughs) tell you that for free pay for the remediation up front maybe Uh, a break an update from the city news center and then how great is the demand for support for local ukrainian families that have settled here we'll find out coming up on the mike farwell show this is city news 570 I am confident that by now you are well aware of the Waterloo region grassroots response to the Ukrainian crisis. It is exactly as it sounds, Uh, a local grassroots organization that is doing its utmost to support Ukrainian families that have resettled here. The thing is, the demand is ever so great. Up to 10 requests now per week from families so desperate for support. Uh, we are joined by a member of the Waterloo Region Grassroots Response to the Ukrainian Crisis, our friend Stephanie Gertz. Steph, it's always good to get you on the show. Good morning. Happy New Year.
10: Good morning. Happy New Year to you, too.
0: <laughs> how How is everybody feeling at Grassroots Response, given the demand that you're seeing from these Ukrainian families?
10: Yeah, I. It's, it's still very overwhelming. Um, it's still very overwhelming for many of us. Many of the people that are requesting our help are people that have been here um, for a month, six months, or one year. Um, they haven't been able to find the support that they need in order to, be, um, to, to feel welcomed in Canada and to even have the basic survival um, jobs or survival skills to make sure that they don't become homeless. Um, so, yeah, it's it's and then hearing the stories of just families of, you know, in Canada where we celebrate the new year, we celebrate the holidays. But, you know, the the deep depression that is set into many Ukrainians um, during this holiday season of, you know, it's it's, it's kind of it kind of brings a different perspective to this holiday
0: for me no question about it and and you know as you you talk about these being families who have been here for some time already and maybe were, were not equipped for you know the challenges that they faced upon arrival it just makes me think of other stories that we've been talking about kind of under that same umbrella with international students or things like that is there a sense stuff that that we were just ill-equipped to deal with the sheer number of refugees that that sought space and comfort here in Canada?
4: Um,
10: I, I think our Canadian government reacted quickly. Um, they created the new the, the visa, the QWIP visa for Ukrainians to enter, but they did little to adjust the resources and support that were set up initially. So, yes, they had to scramble. Yes, they had to identify what could they put on the ground and get moving um, and have ready for the Ukrainians initially. But it's been two years now almost. And they have not adapted their program and they have not analyzed how it's actually not been a failure um, in terms of opening up the door and allowing Ukrainians to flee to Canada. But in the terms of the success rate of how many are actually um finding the support they need in Canada and are actually staying in Canada. Um, many are opting um, because of circumstances of being scammed, um, of circumstances of lack of support, of circumstances of their jobs, not them themselves not being qualified, of circumstances of them entering Canada with very little English and therefore not being able to find any jobs. Many of them are finding they feel safer and they feel Um, it's a better option to actually go back to Ukraine um, than stay in Canada.
0: That's a pretty telling statement, that they'd feel more comfortable. I mean, I get the connection to one's homeland, but that is a homeland that is currently in the midst of war, and yet that may be a better option than what they've ended up with here.
10: Yeah, and that's not something we've heard only a few times. We've heard that a good number of times. And there are people that would like to go back to Ukraine, but there is no other option. So they have to stay in Canada and they feel trapped. Um, and, you know, there's story after story of of people, Ukrainians being taken advantage of, of the lack of support that they've needed for um, in their health care or in their employment or in their settlement. And so that's what, you know, grassroots is, is hoping to do is to raise more awareness of, of the struggles the Ukrainians are facing because they're not recognized as refugees, they do not get the same support financially or through housing or through you know other social support that's set up for um, refugees. Uh, they're entering Canada, and they're asked to fend for themselves with no place to turn to to fill in the gaps when they can't find a job because they don't know don't know English, or they can't find a landlord to rent to them because they've only arrived two weeks. Are one week and they don't have any credit history, or um, so there's they've m- many Ukrainians have turned to our normal settlement services and have turned to other organizations, but these organizations are not set up to help with those things, and they're just there is no one that is, and so they're left on their own, and that's where our group is trying to assist people coming to a lot of the region, and we're hopefully expanding into other areas, but we're trying to fill in some of these gaps so that. Um, so we can help the, have Ukrainians feel safer in Canada, feel that they belong, so that they don't have to do, make a tough choice of do we go back to a war-torn country where you know they have the, the support of family and friends and in their community, as well as you know they can find employment and find work. Yes, there might be you know they worry about bombs going off, but at least they can afford housing and food.
0: What kinds of support does Waterloo Region Grassroots Response provide to these families?
10: Yeah, so, for example, uh, since it's been about a year now, less about 11 months now that we started up doing our Ukrainian guest houses, so we currently have the capacity, I think, to help over 80 people with housing. In the Region, that's all thanks from community landlords as well as people who have housing um, houses that they're allowing us to use. And so we do provide emergency and short term housing for family to help them get on their feet. We have a team of volunteers that are trying to connect them with employers that are um, willing to hire them with no English or with no limited experience or hire them quickly. So we're always looking for employers who say, yeah, you know what, let's work together. We, we have job opportunities. There's gaps maybe in our workforce. And we want to adapt our process or the way we hire or how we um, uh, accommodate people who don't speak English. So we're looking for people to do that. But also we have a huge team that does our intake process. So like you were saying, we get anywhere between, um, I think this past week we probably got 15 um, 15 to 20 applications in a week um, that people and families request an urgent need for help from within a day notice or two days notice of them being homeless. And so we have a group of volunteers, half of them are Ukrainian newcomers themselves, and we connect with the families. We understand what their needs are. We understand, um, you know, how we can best maybe help them with employment and housing. And then when they arrive, we have a secondary interview process again, with a bunch of volunteers that, you know, say, do you need doctors? Do you need help with clothing? Do you need food? You know, what kind of support can we coordinate for you? Um, so there's tons of stuff. <laughs> we create kits and baskets for hygiene items. Um, we help with furniture. We help selling secondary housing for families. Um, yeah. And this is all based on, you know, the mass amount of people in our community that really want to help.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'm just thinking about that, and 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 how you said at the outset stuff that, you know, this holiday had a bit of a different feel for you, considering what you know is going on with these folks that you've been trying so hard to help, and and this must be taking a toll on on the volunteers with the grassroots
10: response. Yeah, I mean, we do have we do a lot of shuffling around. Um, when some volunteers jump in, sometimes they jump in <laughs> with both feet to legs, and their you know child or their spouse pulling them in with them, and they they coordinate nonstop and they offer support. And then they they do they do burn out, but they don't burn out as in leaving our group. We just reshuffle them to a different task or a different opportunity so that they still stay involved in the families. The amount of people that are connected to Supporting families um, is 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 just amazing. How many people that you talk to? Anyone in our group, and most of them are helping in some way: driving around, uh, phoning people, or talking with social support. Even if they're not in a like an official role, they're still, you know, doing something to support the families that we're working with.
0: How can the rest of us, Steph, how can the broader community support the work that your network of volunteers is doing on behalf of these families with the Waterloo Region Grassroots Response? What can we
4: do?
10: Yeah, we want to keep our name, like the grassroots. We want to keep mobilizing. Um, But as we keep growing, we have to put in some organizational structure and all that. And it's not something, you know, we want to stay grassroots. And so... We want to be able to find local churches or service clubs or other groups to work with. And we would love to connect them with families in their neighbourhoods. We would love to be able to offer the opportunity for them to get to meet the Ukrainian newcomers and have them act as a social point for these newcomers. That would really allow us to ensuring that uh, we're not a bottleneck. That we as you know we keep getting you know fifty or twenty or new families every few months um, at some point we've made, we've reached our capacity. so we really need community groups and churches or neighborhood associations to step up and say yeah, we want to be we want to be friends, we want to help. We want to connect with people in our neighborhood that need us. so please reach out to us and we will connect you with the, with the Ukrainian newcomers and the families. There's a lot of children that need mental health support in terms of just friendship. There's a lot of youth who are really struggling with depression, um, and they just need a friend. So if you can be that friend, if you can be the person checking on them to make sure they can get the food bank, please reach out to us. So we're looking for a group to do this, not necessarily your individuals, because we want to hand off this organizational capacity. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we need. Also, funding is huge. Um, because there's so much for us to coordinate um, on our end in terms of all the interviews and all the support that we're offering, we really need um, some additional funding to hire newcomers. So we hire only Ukrainian newcomers into our teams, and that offers the, the cultural knowledge that we need to to offer the support. The funding is huge. We work off donations. We're not federally or provincially funded. Um, Yeah, so donations are obviously huge for us, so we can continue, keep expanding and growing.
0: Well, I hope we can help spread the word of not only the great work that you're doing, but also the support that you need to continue providing this support. Uh, I love the work that you're doing, Steph, and I appreciate the time on the show today. Thanks for being here.
11: Thanks,
0: Mike. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Stephanie Gertz is with the Waterloo Region Grassroots Response to the Ukrainian Crisis. That group now responding to up to 10 requests every week from desperate families in need. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Earlier this morning on the show, we talked about funding for the arts in this region, a sector that I think is tragically underfunded. I did my best to make the case for why I think not only is it underfunded, but what we can do to increase funding for arts and culture organizations. But really, the conversation was sparked by an excellent piece in the Waterloo Region Record by Terry Pender who had a conversation with Martin De Groot, who's the former executive director of the Waterloo Region Arts Council. And we couldn't connect with uh, Marty back at 9.30 this morning, but we've got him with us now, and I'm so glad for that, because he can make the case so much better than I. Uh, Mr. De Groot, good morning. Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy <laughs> New Year to you, too. Thank you, my friend. Uh, the, we are the largest municipality now in Ontario without an arts Council, what would an arts council do for support of arts and culture?
4: Well, uh, an arts council would serve and represent both the arts community, the the, the sector, and the public, um, because it's it, it's both a public service. organization. it would be pub, the way I imagine an arts council would be, and the way we try to run it. Uh, was that we would serve and represent both. Uh, and we got a small amount of funding from the region at the time and did our best, uh, but then things changed. Do you feel,
0: Marty, as though the arts is underappreciated in this region?
4: I think appreciated, underappreciated is maybe a better term than just underfunded because it's not just funding it seems to be just totally off the radar. Uh, the, the the Regional Agency for, for, for Economic Development, uh, it was once interested, not even interested in cultural industries anymore. It's just off people's attention. And I think that's very, very unfortunate.
0: I agree wholeheartedly with that. Tremendously unfortunate, and yes, also underappreciated. So you've you've got an idea for a festival that might give birth to a new council. What's the idea?
4: Well, uh, festivals may be the wrong, but it started with thinking about the symphony, right? Which is the the most recent crisis, and, and the symphony is. Play such an important role. When it first happened, I said this is the the cornerstone in some ways of the whole system. Partly because it's been around for so long, it's an integral part of the history of our community. It goes back to 1883 when when they first started to build the the Berlin Philharmonic and Orchestral Society. So it's 140 years, and also it's so large. There are 52 people who were on the payroll, making a living wage. And I can't think of another organization that even has one artist doing artistic work on the payroll. They do curatorial work or management work, but the rest is all gig work, right? So that's part of, I mean, when you think of the size of it, you realize how difficult it is to keep something like that going. It's a miracle that it's possible. But now that it's in a crisis, I advocated going back to the original uh, conception. There was no professional orchestra until 1972 when Rafi Armenian came here, and his vision—he was inspired by what they had done in Stratford, uh, and he said, "We can do this here." Uh, and his his idea was Wagner Ring cycle, uh, but that that was his vision. And he got as far as, first of all, turning the orchestra into a 1st rank professional orchestra and then managed with incredible energy and drive to get Center in the Square and the Rafi Armenian Concert Hall built. But the rest of the vision was never completed. It was never meant or built to be something that just served local audiences. It was meant to be something of the scale and size of Stratford. Now... It's no longer 1972, this is 2023, so we have to reconfigure And I think part of the problem then was 1972 was not 1952 when Tom Patterson imagined what became Stratford, or when those local business people here imagined what became the University of Waterloo. The 50s, 60s were times when you could build and you could think large. 72 things started to shrink. Uh, and I think in 2023, we have to go back to being able to imagine things. And you imagine them in different ways, and you build them in different ways. So I wanted something of that scale and size, uh, and work towards it piecemeal, uh, perhaps. But that's part of what I had in mind when I taught. That was, Uh, a two-hour conversation I had with Terry. He was very patient. He heard me go on and on about all kinds of things. (laughs) And uh, festival is a bit of a... a, a, It's festival, sure, but uh, it has to be something that suits our time.
0: Terry is a good lad for that sort of thing. And, you know, when you talk about the imagination, Martin, and how you know, we have to kind of think forward like that. To me, that's the very essence of what arts and culture brings to a community, this sense of wonder, this sense of awe, allowing us for whatever length of time we're taking in a performance or observing the art to let our minds go somewhere else and think beyond our own walls.
4: That's part of what the arts does and why. And it's also something that we and do we need to imagine all kinds of things in the other fields as well? You know, housing, uh, the drug crisis. The, the, I was talking with someone from the the Canadian Mental Health Association, Waterloo Wellington, talking about how how much the pandemic has affected just everyone's lives. Right? All these things are huge challenges that we have before us. Um, I think. We need to imagine and dare and, and innovate and try things all the way across the board. But in the arts, these are things that are in our immediate control. It is possible to restore the symphony and build it back up. That's that, And that's why when we went to the region and said, just please leave that amount in the budget. Leave it in the budget. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to spend it. Right now, there's nothing to spend it on because the symphony organization is in limbo. But don't acknowledge that. Don't give up. Support those musicians who so bravely uh, uh, that they want to keep their job. They went forward. They've got this incredible campaign. They've raised all kinds of money. They've had attention all across North America and across the world for the effort uh, by leaving it in the budget, you're, you're giving them, you're saying there's a chance. And that's all we asked for. We didn't ask for a bailout or anything like that. And I think I wanted the regional council and the cities to get behind this, partly because this is something that we can actually win. This is, a, uh, this is something we can do if we put our heads together. It's not going to cost huge amounts of money. In fact, in the end, it's going to help us solve those other problems, and it will benefit the economic well-being of this city.
0: I don't know where you get the energy from, but I'm glad you've got it. Uh, and let's keep the conversations going, okay? Martin, thanks for being here today.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Enjoy Thank your you day. Again. I looked. At, we're going to talk again. We're going to keep this conversation going, okay? Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Marty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Martin Groot is the former executive director of the Waterloo Region Arts Council. We will continue this theme in the months and years ahead on the program. Got to run. I'm a little late for news, but I'm glad we could connect with Marty after all. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570.
1: This is where today's topics turn into today's talking points.
8: It's local and it's Democratic radio at its finest.
1: This is the Mike Farwell
8: Show on City News 570. It quickly became apparent that the NWMO was in our community and their purpose was to convince the community to build
10: a DGR. Um, My first experience with them was I attended a workshop and at that
2: workshop they claimed that nobody knew if or where a proposed site would be. Um, The next morning, it was in the news that the NDWMO had
11: secured 1,300 acres of farmland, and that included farms, properties on both sides of our farm.
8: The Mike Farwell Show continues on City News 570 and Rogers TV Cable 20.
11: And that was
0: Michelle Stein, who joined our show yesterday. Michelle is one of the inaugural members of Protect Our Waterways, a group of concerned citizens in South Bruce Township that have gotten together to learn as much as they can about this proposed DGR, or Deep Geological Repository, where it's possible that nuclear waste will one day be buried you heard michelle make reference to the nwmo that would be the nuclear waste management organization and its vice president of site selection lise morton joins us on the program this morning lise good morning
5: good morning mike how are you i'm
0: doing very well thank you how about yourself
5: I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm glad to hear that. And thank you very much for making time to talk about an issue that uh, is of great interest to our audience here on, on the show. And I thought maybe we could start with a little bit of background or a better understanding of these DGRs, Lise. What is a deep geological repository?
5: Yeah, a deep geological repository is a deep underground cavern or vault, if you want to think of it that way, it's a network of tunnels and rooms where you would emplace canada's used nuclear fuel over a very long term and and just for for everybody to know the fuel that we're talking about that's used in the reactors in canada is a solid ceramic uranium pellet so we're not talking about a liquid kind of a material this is a solid very stable ceramic material and it's emplaced in a dgr deep underground to protect it from the environment and from water
0: And so where does this idea come from, Lise, to dispose of our spent nuclear fuel in this way?
5: Every nation in the world that's, that has a domestic nuclear energy program is pursuing this type of solution. Um, the solution as to what to do with used nuclear fuel has been studied internationally for decades, actually. And every country that, again, is advanced in their nuclear program is pursuing the, the same option. Uh, again, the depth and in, in disposing of this material at depth is very important. And so the international consensus is to, is to dispose of it in these deep repositories. And and Finland, in fact, is, is the furthest along and they are currently constructing their DGR that will hold uh, their used nuclear fuel and it's intended to be operational within the next year or so.
0: I wondered about that. So clearly, uh, these sorts of uh, solutions are already in place, at least it will be very shortly in Finland.
5: Yes. So there are already repositories in place for different types of nuclear waste, what we call low and intermediate level waste, which are different kind of types than the fuel. Finland will be the first one to actually in place used nuclear fuel. Um, but other countries are definitely pursuing this. Again, Sweden is pursuing this. Switzerland recently named a site. France is pursuing it. Uh, so uh, the concept of Deep disposal and disposal at different depths is has already been in operation for different types of fuels. There's there's a facility in the states, um, but yeah, this is definitely the international consensus, and many countries are pursuing the same option.
0: So we heard from Michelle Stein at the very beginning of our conversation this morning, Lee's and South Bruce's. Is- uh, very much in our listening area here in the region, and, and we've got lots of folks from our community that, that cottage or, or like to vacation, do some summering uh, in South Bruce, which is one of the potential uh, locations for this DGR. The other, much further afield in northwestern Ontario. What makes those two areas ideal candidates for the repository?
5: Yeah, so um, again, just to, to be clear, as you say, there are two remaining sites, and this is a voluntary siting process. Communities came forward in some cases, and in the cases of these two communities, almost a decade ago, uh, saying that they were willing to learn more about the project. And we've been working with these communities for, for about 10 years. So the remaining two sites, one is in uh, Northern Ontario, uh, in the traditional territory of Wabagoon Lake, Ojibwe Nation, uh, near the town of Ignace. And as you say, the other one is in Southern Ontario, near uh, in the town of South Bruce. Uh, which is a, within a traditional territory of, uh, Saugeen Ojibwe Nation. Um, and both of these communities have, we've done extensive, uh, drilling, borehole drilling of the rock underneath these facilities. They have very different types of rock in the north versus the south. The south has sedimentary rock. Uh, the north has granitic rock. But this rock, and as we know, Canada is, is founded on a, on a, literally a bedrock. Um, this rock is incredibly well, uh, positioned to safely contain, uh, the radioactivity for many, many decades and millennia to come. So, so the geology is very strong in both of these areas.
0: You mentioned, and, and that checks out, because as somebody who does cottage in the Bruce County area, it's about a decade since I started seeing the signs from some of the property owners that may not be too comfortable with a, with this idea. But you said the work's been going on now for about a decade. What does that work look like, Lees? How, how do you work with these communities to prepare for this possibility?
5: Yeah, so we've been, uh, as you say, we've been engaging with these communities for for about a decade. And we have local offices uh, in each of the communities. Uh, and we have teams that that uh, live locally and that work locally. I, myself, live in Bruce County. And uh, as you say, I, I'm well aware and, and interact with a lot of cottagers as well. Um, and so our teams are out in the community, meeting with community members, going to various functions, meeting them at their homes, if that's what they wish. And really making sure that we're answering people's questions, listening to their concerns, and providing them the answers and the information that they need uh, to understand the project. So, um, and we also work with community leaders, um, and we're currently working on what it would look like if these communities were to come forward and host the repository.
0: What happens between now, because as we understand, it was reported by the Canadian press, which led to these conversations we're having on our show this week. This is the year, it's the big year, when the final site will be selected. What happens between now and that ultimate decision?
5: Yes, 2024 is a very exciting year. It's going to be a very interesting year for, I think, not just ourselves and our organization, but but for the country as well and for the nuclear industry in our country. Um, so there's a lot of work happening this year. We're going to continue to work in the communities. We'll, you'll see us out at at fall fairs and at various events and, uh, and meeting with people to, again, continue to answer the questions that people have. We know that people have a lot of questions about a, uh, a project like this, and we're always there to, to come meet people wherever they are. So we'll continue the engagement. And then each of the communities has decided themselves um, how they will decide if they want to host this project. We've always said that we will only proceed in an area where the local communities and the local First Nation are informed and willing to host the project. So each of the communities has their own uh, process that they're going to follow to decide if they want to host the, uh, the project. Um, and we'll, we'll be seeing some of those uh, willingness processes proceed this year.
0: Is it possible, please, that this project gets rejected by both communities here in Ontario?
5: Well, we're pretty confident that we'll be successful in our site selection process. And we've done a lot of long work and a lot of leg work with these communities um, to, to move towards this next step. Um, but ultimately, if neither site is interested in moving forward, then we will have to reevaluate. But we, as a uh, as a nonprofit organization, we have a mandate under a federal legislation to find a permanent solution for this fuel. So we would have to regroup and reevaluate and and continue to proceed to find a solution. Um, so it really would be pushing off the solution to a, to for for several more years, which would not be um, optimal for, for Canada. Um, but again, we're we're pretty confident that we'll be successful in our site selection process. I,
0: I have had opportunity to speak with elected officials in South Bruce for sure. And I can certainly understand the economic side of this and and the benefit from the sheer number of jobs created, etc. Can you give us any indication of what what the project looks like once it is given the green light? I mean, this must just be massive in scope.
5: Right. It it is a very big um, infrastructure project. So, um, I often say to people that once we select a site, in some ways, that's just the beginning. And I think it's very important for people to understand that once a site is selected, then the work really begins. We start doing even more detailed site characterization work at the at the facility, at the proposed site. And we have to go through a very rigorous public um, environmental assessment, or what's now called impact assessment process, and an approvals process with the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. That process of obtaining approval for the project, we estimate could take approximately 10 years. So the first 10 years is really spent doing a lot more work on the site, getting more site-detailed information, and presenting a safety case to the regulator that all goes through a public hearing. At that point, then we would move to construction. And we estimate that would start in about 2032, 2033. And it's a 10-year construction for a pe- for a project like this. And then finally, once we would construct, then you begin operations. And the operations would last 50 to 60 years, depending on the amount of fuel that you're disposing of. In terms of jobs, you really see the peak for sure during construction. But through all of the phases, ultimately when you get to operations, this would be a mid-sized approximately 700 or 750 employee operation ongoing for decades in the community.
0: Lise, I know I was a little behind my time and kept you waiting this morning. Uh, Thank you for your patience and thank you for making time for the show. I really appreciate it.
5: Thank you so much. We appreciate being here.
0: Lise Morton is the vice president of site selection with the NWMO, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. It's between... South Bruce, and a community up by Ignace in northwestern Ontario. Those are the two, and you heard Lee's say that the NWMO is confident that one or the other, as a community, will vote in support of this DGR, this Deep Geological Repository, to store Canada's spent nuclear Fuel. You learn something new every day. I had this vision in my mind of something kind of liquid. Oh, they're pellets. You tell me. Okay, and yes, I also knew that Finland was close to opening such a site. As Lee's points out, Sweden, Switzerland, uh, the United States, to a degree on a slightly different scale, but have similar uh, repositories for nuclear waste already. In place, look and I, I I am loathe to make it all about the economy. it's the economy stupid or all about the numbers, but truly, anybody that's been up to the Bruce in the last twenty years or so has seen what I have seen, right? I mean, the boom, quite frankly in the area is is rather significant. It hit me most directly when I was out on a nice weekend motorcycle tour and I found myself in Hanover. And so along with, and I know Hanover's in Gray County, but along with our family's long history in Port Elgin in Bruce County, right there on Lake Huron and the beach community that it is, on the other side of our family... Uh, we had a, a cottage in Hanover as well. That's been long, long since removed from the family. But I just I remember Hanover as this sleepy little itty bitty. Like there was hardly anything there. And so, on this recent motorcycle sojourn into Hanover, I've looked around and thought, what in H E double hockey sticks has gone on around here? Oh, the Bruce, because when Bruce Power was built and opened, the the job creation was simply magnificent. And again, I'm not trying to make this all about the economy, stupid. I'm, I'm just pointing out, and I think it's obvious to any of us who have traveled up that way, that there is unquestionably an economic spinoff benefit to these communities. Oh yeah, and the other side of that equation is, how do you feel about living nearby or next to a repository for nuclear waste. When we had uh, Michelle Stein from Protect Our Waterways on the show yesterday, she made it very clear that should this repository end up where it's proposed in South Bruce, she and her family who have had this farm for decades will be moving on from their homestead. I totally understand that side of it as well. Maybe it's just me. But I find all of this fascinating, in part because I know the area as well as I do, and I, I have a real sentimental attachment to it. So that part of it makes this interesting to me. But quite frankly, the whole idea of burying this spent nuclear fuel deep beneath the ground and the, the caverns that are created, I, I find it incredibly interesting. I hope you do too. That's what we try to do here on the show. Interest you, inform you, and every once in a while, if we're lucky, we give you some entertainment too. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570.
5: We've always said that we will only proceed in an area where the local communities and the local First Nations are informed and willing to host the project. So each of the communities has their own process that they're going to follow to decide if they want to host the project. And we'll be seeing some of those willingness processes proceed this year.
0: Lise Morton is the Vice President of Site Selection with the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. And the NWMO, as it's known, will determine by the end of this year where Canada's nuclear waste will be buried. There are two potential locations here in Ontario. One away up in the northwest, think Thunder Bay, and you're in the general vicinity, a little north of, actually. And the other being in an area that I know you know well, and that is Bruce County and South Bruce Township, to be more specific. You've probably, if you've driven into Bruce County at all over the last number of years, have seen the signs protesting against the idea of placing this DGR, this Deep Geological Repository, in Bruce County. So we'll see. The the point being that by the end of this year, the Site Selection Committee will have made its ultimate determination and and should it fail for whatever reason, and Lise Morton expressed her confidence in the process this morning, but should it fail, it's a real setback for the industry generally. And when it comes to the the, the nuclear industry that is in this country, because it's kind of counting on this next step in the storage and, uh, I guess, deposit of the, of the nuclear waste. Our, our guest on the show yesterday... From South Bruce Township and the group called Protect Our Waterways, Michelle Stein said she's hopeful that at minimum what they do when holding the referendum on this idea in South Bruce is have a paper ballot referendum. That's what they're hoping for. Paul sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. He says one of the questions that I'm not hearing asked is where is the waste being stored now? And why do the powers that be want to change the method of storage at this point in time? Uh, it's an interesting question, Paul. I would suspect it's just a matter of capacity, right? And probably overall safety as well. But that's just my guess, and I'm, I'm sorry I didn't ask that question along the way. All right, we've got an update coming your way from the City News Center. And then, have you ever had salary envy I know I have. I try really hard to not because, you know, comparison is the thief of joy after all. I've chosen a career path. It's not the most lucrative career path, but I'm pretty happy in what I do. So, you know, the checks don't bounce every two weeks. But what about the people that are making more than 240 times more than average Joes and Janes like you and me? How do you feel about those people? You know, those people. We'll talk about those people coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. Stay with us. This is City News 570. Before that update with Aaron, I asked you if you've ever had salary envy. I think this goes well beyond just salary envy. I could be wrong. I mean, comparison is in the eye of the comparator, I suppose. But the envy in this case is for the highest paid CEOs in this country who now, according to a new report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, make 243 times more than average schmucks like you and me. 243 times more than average workers do the 100 highest paid CEOs in Canada make. That is a staggering number, to be sure. And here to tell us more about the numbers in the report is David McDonald, a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, good morning. Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you very much. I mean, I feel as though I should just give up right now, though, because it is past 943 this morning, January the 3rd, when the average CEO has already made more annually than I'm going to make.
6: Yeah, and they did it yesterday at 927 (laughs) a.m. You know, it doesn't take that long to make $60,000, which is the average workers pay in Canada when you're making $7,200 an hour. It's a bit more than... Minimum wage, uh, but that is what the average CEO makes, $7,200 an hour uh, for each uh, weekday of the year for a total of $14.9 million, which is a, a new all-time high. Um, you mentioned this in the introduction, but I think it, it's worth repeating that um, certainly CEOs are seeing higher pay, uh, and that's important. But what's even more important is that the gap between what CEOs make and what the average worker makes is growing It hit a new all-time high this year, 246 times, which bested last year's ratio. Uh, And it's been going up pretty substantially. Uh, You know, when we started doing this, this is now an annual survey. When we started this in 2008, it wasn't 250 times, it was 150 times, and we thought that was high. In the 90s, it was 100 times. In the 80s, it was 50 times. Um, So CEOs have always made more than the average worker. I mean, 50 times more than the average worker is a lot more than the average worker. And uh, that's where we were in the 80s. And that gap just seems to keep growing year after year.
0: How did inflation factor into these increases in that gap over the past year, David?
6: Yeah, this is a story about inflation in a roundabout way. Um, CEOs are paid very differently than the average worker. So for CEOs, only 8% of their pay comes from salaries um, and 84% of their pay comes Uh, from something called uh, performance-based compensation or incentive-based compensation um, is bonuses, in essence. 84% of their their pay is bonuses. So those bonuses are going to be linked to things uh, in company performance. Broadly, they're going to reflect things like whether the profit or profit margins or revenue are going up for a particular company. Now, during the inflationary years, uh, 2021-2022, Prices were going up. That is the definition of inflation. Prices are rising. This blew up profit margins in the corporate sector, and and margins um, were way outside of historic norms. And this is what bonuses are based on. And so, inflation drives profits. Profits drive bonuses. And we see this record payday in 2022. Uh, you know, CEOs and their companies arguing, "Look, we're just increasing our." Our prices, to to reflect the fact that our costs are going up, um, that's not how the CEOs are being paid, though. The CEOs are being paid as if every dime of those increased prices is absolutely there they're doing, and they should be rewarded as a result of
0: You mentioned that CEOs get paid differently than the average worker. And and if I'm being honest, David, I I, I might put forward the argument that CEOs as workers, if you will, are actually different than the average worker. I have no illusions about being a CEO myself of a major corporation. I think they're kind of cut from a a different cloth here. So is, is it fair to compare their salaries, their compensation to that of schmucks like me?
6: Yeah, I think what's important is not that they make more. Of course they make more, uh, and they've always made more and they've always made a lot more. Um, what's really driving this, um, isn't so much the basic salary. Um, the basic salary has actually been fairly consistent over time at about a million dollars, which is actually, you know, roughly 50 times what the average worker makes. Um, what's really been driving this is the bonus structure. And, uh, that's what's driving the much bigger gap. Um, we unfortunately have undervalued the contribution of regular workers to the economy and overvalued the contribution of CEOs to our economy and economic growth. We think back during the pandemic, how uh, we looked down prior to the pandemic on grocery store workers seen as, you know, low skilled job and not terribly important disposable workers, as it were. Turned out those workers pretty essential in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and I think we do that all the time. We just undervalue the frontline workers. Work hard. They're never going to make what a CEO makes. CEOs always are going to make more. Um, but the question is, when a company does well, when the economy does well, who benefits? Uh, and increasingly, it's the folks at the top, unfortunately, uh, like the CEOs that uh, are seeing these ever-higher bonuses year after year.
0: Why just CEOs in this analysis? Why not Canada's highest-paid athletes or entertainers or surgeons, etc.?
6: Well, in part, uh, the CEOs, uh, we can track it. Um, and so CEOs are for, well, the companies, the publicly traded companies in Canada are forced to disclose, uh, the compensation broken down by a variety of categories. And so it can be tracked over time. Um, remember, of course, that, that, uh, CEOs, workers like everybody else. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, these are the com- they head the companies that, that many Canadians work for, do business with. Um, so, Uh, This is an important way to to practically measure income inequality and show uh, how it's changing over time and why it's changing over time. So, you know, we spoke briefly about these bonuses being an important part of this being driven up by high corporate profits in 21 and 22. The interesting part of bonuses is uh, they imply that if the company doesn't do well, the CEO will take a pay cut, you know, potentially get paid nothing because the bonuses will bottom out, and they'll get paid nothing. That's not actually what happened. And we saw this play out in real time in 2020 when we were doing the report in 2020. Um, we actually saw a slightly higher CEO compensation in 2020 than 2019, despite a huge drop in corporate profits. And I really dug into this. And uh, the big reason why is that many of these CEOs had their pay packages changed after the fact. They changed the bonus formulas after the fact to exclude the bad news and insulate them, in essence, and particularly their, insulate their bonuses um, from any drops. And so this is the nature of this bonus system. is It's not based on merit. Uh, it's based on going big in good times and being protected in bad times. Um, and it really breaks this idea that there's some sort of a, a merit-based system. It's it's a power-based system. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, workers' power isn't as strong as it might have been in the past.
0: One of the things I really like about your report, David, is, look, it's it's easy to have some salary envy and point figures and say, well, you know, this, this person over here is making 246 times more than me, the average worker, but you do point to some possible policy solutions here. What could we do to address this ever-widening gap of income inequality?
6: Yeah, the, we have to remember that tax rates used to be a lot higher in the rich in Canada. Uh, in the golden years, post-war period, uh, 50s, 60s, um, top marginal brackets were 70, 80 percent, depending on the year. Um, they're now at about 55 percent in the big provinces, Ontario, Quebec. So they're a lot lower than they used to be. And the rich just pay a lot less in taxes than they used to uh, on that sort of basic tax table. We also provide a bunch of tax breaks to people who don't need them. Um, you know, there's specialized tax breaks if you get paid in stock options. You get a half off coupon on your taxes. You rare group of people that are getting paid in stock options. CEOs definitely part of that group. Um, if you make a lot of money selling shares in a company, you gain the capital gains inclusion rate. It's another uh tax loophole that gives you fifty percent off on uh, uh, on the income that you make in that particular way that is very unique to CEOs and people who own a lot of stock in these companies. Uh, the companies themselves write off these tax packages. So they actually don't pay corporate income taxes on these big tax packages they pay out. Um, these could all be different. I mean, you know, we could change these. Uh, we could have new top marginal brackets. Um, we could restrict the loopholes. Um, and it is worth pointing out that we have actually. I mean, in July, July of 2021, the, uh, the restriction came into place for the stock option deduction so if you're paid in stock options now it's limited as to how much you can uh you can get to how much your 50 percent off coupon applies to it Two hundred thousand dollars. that's still probably too high but it was an important uh nod to the fact that uh this is an odd tax break for people who don't need tax breaks they're already multimillionaires. Uh, and we continue to give them tax breaks let's close tax breaks and put that money to better use uh, you know, helping folks that are having trouble in the affordability crisis or rebuilding health care.
0: It is uh, an interesting conversation, to be sure. David, really appreciate you being a part of it. Uh, once again, Happy New Year, and thanks for being here. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. David McDonald is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, the CCPA, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, calls this truly the hallmark of a new gilded Age, Why? Because the 100 highest paid CEOs in Canada now make 246 times more than average workers. Look, the numbers are staggering. The numbers for mere mortals like you and me are pretty hard to wrap our heads around. But here's how they break down. According to the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives in its annual report, the top CEOs make just over $7,100 per hour. So it takes only a little more than eight hours to make the $60,607 of annual pay of the average worker. If we say, according to the CCPA's media release, if we say that both get paid vacations, like New Year's Day, Then by Tuesday, January the 2nd, 2024, at 9.27 a.m., that's yesterday, those CEOs will have already gotten what the average worker makes in a year. By 9.27 yesterday morning, the top CEOs in this country and their average of $7,162 per hour have already made more than the average worker by 927 yesterday morning which again leads me to wonder what in HE double hockey sticks am i doing here today because i ain't going to make well, i guess i'm what i'm doing here is trying to catch up right to those ceos the problem is they're running at a rate of more than $7100 per hour and i most certainly am not I, I find these analyses interesting, sure, because the numbers are just I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are. They're they're massive, they're incomprehensible to mere mortals like you and me. And and by the way, the uh the highest CEO salary a year ago uh was to the head of Restaurant Brands International, which is the company that operates Tim Hortons. Now, there is, as always, another side to this. You know what they say about numbers, right? Figures never lie and liars never figure. But when you have a data set of numbers, you can analyze those numbers in a variety of ways. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives uses this set of numbers to analyze what they have identified as an ever-widening gap in income equality. I think that's reasonable. I do. I mean, look, I think we all understand that some people just make more than other people. But, but why do those who make more continue to make so much more than the rest of us sort of at the other end of that salary food chain, if you will? Right? I think there's something to that part of the analysis. But, you know, uh, my good friend and colleague, Rob Snow, the host of Now You Know, every day from 1 until 3 here on City News 570, has as a regular guest one of my favorites, Ian Lee, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. I love listening to Ian, and I love the conversations he and Rob have on a regular basis. And as luck would have it, Rob had Ian on the show yesterday to talk about this very report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And just for perspective, here's a little bit of what Ian had to say about it.
1: It's this ideology uh, masquerading, anti-corporate ideology masquerading as research. Number one, it's bad methodology. They've cherry-picked the data. When you're analyzing inequality, which is what they're doing, their their purpose is to show that there's inequality between the top and the bottom. You don't just choose some of the people who are at the top. You choose everyone. Statscan talks about the 1%. They don't say, we're only going to look at the 1% that are working in business, but we're going to ignore the 1% who are medical doctors or uh, Sidney Crosby, who makes 15 million U.S. as a hockey player. You don't do that. That is just so fun. That it's like saying, I'm a public opinion pollster like Nick Nanos, and I'm only going to go out and interview people that support the Conservative Party. It's just a violation of. Of everything about methodology and, and and sampling, the second fundamental flaw, and again it 's about comparability, is the unstated assumption, very clear throughout the report and i 've been reading the report every year the very clear um, unstated assumption that that uh, these are interchangeable blocks like Lego plastic block building blocks. A person at the bottom' is interchangeable with the person at the top, you just pop them in at the top, and away you go. This is specious nonsense that has been discredited completely in the economics literature and the strategy literature over the last 50 years. A very famous professor at Chicago wrote the, the classic landmark article called The Economics of Superstars. He wrote the article back in the 80s and said, why is it that CEOs and rock stars and Hollywood stars and sports stars are making astronomical salaries hundreds of times, hundreds of times greater, sometimes thousands of times greater than everybody else? And he concluded, after researching this extensively, and it was a peer-reviewed article in the most prestigious economics journal, and it's been du- duplicated and, 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 and analyzed since by other people, sports economists and, and business economists and so forth, that the supply of these superstars, think the CEO of a big company, think Taylor Swift, think Patrick Mahomes, think Sidney Crosby. There's First off, they're unique... They're not one of us. So sorry, uh, Mr. CCPA. No, they're not you and me. The idea that you know we can go out after work and go to a karaoke bar, get drunk and sing karaoke, and "Hey, we're the next Taylor Swift," is <laughs> nonsense. It's fantasy, it's delusional.
0: I, I'm not Taylor Swift. I've never sung karaoke in my life. Uh, That's Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University on Now You Know with Rob Snow yesterday afternoon sharing his perspective on the report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that reminds us that the gap is ever widening. The top CEOs now making 246 times more than Joe and Jane Public like you and me. Look, they're always going to be paid more, but should they always be paid more and more or just more i'd love to hear your thoughts we'll take a break come back with your calls this is the mike farwell show on city news 570
6: this is the nature of this bonus system is it's not based on merit based on going big in good times and being protected in bad times and it really breaks this idea that there's some sort of a merit-based system it's a power-based system and unfortunately you know workers power isn't as strong as it might have been in the past
0: David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, talking to us about the annual report from the CCPA about the highest paid CEOs and how much more than the average worker those CEOs are making. Now, 246 times more. Thank you very much. Let's go to the phones. Dave, good morning.
12: Good morning, Mike. Uh, happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, by the way, good show. Thank um, you. Mike, it, I don't call this call this a uh, conversation. I call it a discussion, more so. I am um, I totally agree with Ian. Um, it's funny when they mention is the uh, majority of the CEOs right now, um, they, they have a very, very, very low salary, and they're paid on performance and stock options. If the company doesn't do well, they don't get paid as much. You have to also realize, as you look at everything, cause, I read really, I the really report every year. Um, I don't really like the report because it doesn't cover everything. I mean, let's, let's look at the public sector. Maybe we should look at that income, what they're getting paid for compared to the, uh, as you call it, average Joe, we are a capitalist country. We are a business country. And, uh, the, the, the more money you earn for your company for CEOs are, is, uh, the more, more value to the stockholders. And obviously, uh, a higher income goes, goes with that. So I, I find it kind of interesting. And, uh, I've I listened to Ian before. I read his articles before, and I think he's bang on on this, and I think you can't pick and choose your uh, your data.
0: All right, Dave. I appreciate the call, and I do think Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business made some interesting points. Just on the public sector point quickly, uh, 15 to 20% more a public sector worker earns than Joe and Jane Public like you and me. The The disparity with CEOs, 246 times more, clearly is far greater. Kyle, good morning
2: morning well that guy stole my thunder i i I agree with him i mean this is the whole point of living in canada and living in a country like this you know there's there's different jobs and you know you get paid i've been paid minimum wage i've been paid very good for working companies and i own my own business and stuff but if i didn't run my own business then what's the point of me you know i would not have a goal of trying to make as much money as possible and earn a uh, comfortable living you know i i want to you know that's the whole point is i want to make more and more money i like i like money i love money i love Making that sales, I love meeting people, and you know what, I pay my employees very well. But at the end of the day, it's my business. The employees work for me, and I treat them very well. But like I like he said, capitalist country. You know, we have a right to to work as much as we want, how how much we want to earn. And sometimes, you know, you start at the bottom, and you got to work your way up, and and that's the way it is, my friend. But. I have no problem with the private sectors of how much money they make. But when it comes to my tax dollars, that's a whole new conversation. Thanks, Mike.
0: All right, Kyle. If that doesn't sum up capitalism, I don't know what does. I love money. I want to make more and more money. That's the goal here, isn't it? The he who dies with the most money wins. Uh, Ian, I got about 60 seconds.
7: Okay, Mike, I am just sort of catching the tail end of this. And my big thing is, as far as I'm concerned, it's still all greed. And when you have a country like as great as supposedly as Canada is, where people now can barely make their mortgage payments, are going to the food bank with a what is a 46% increase, um, then I think we need to look at this 240-plus um, earnings more of a CEO and really start...
0: I don't know where Ian went. I did not stop Ian at all, but I think we get where he was going. <laughs> and his phone, he was in his Tesla, and the phone dropped out. It's, sometimes it's sudden like that. i tell you what. Here, Here's the beauty of 2024 on this show. The next hour, oh, it's an open line hour, the 12 o'clock talkback. So, Ian, if you're still listening, unless the online radio system in your Tesla dropped out, You can call us back and pick up the conversation in the next hour where we will have more space. And Grant, if you want to hang on, well, gosh darn it, Grant, you just hang right on, okay? An update from the City News Center is coming up. And then the 12 o'clock talkback hour, which is a full hour of open lines just for you to have a conversation with me. Give me a call. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570.
11: Take out
13: the papers and the trash.
3: Don't talk back.
1: Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust out with that room? Get all the garbage outside. All oh, you don't go out Friday night. Jaggedy, yeah. Don't talk back.
7: I dig it.
0: I think I dig it a whole lot. Devin Robertson, the guy on the other side of the glass, and I were talking about how this might sound. As introduction to the 12 o'clock talk back hour. I know, I know that they're saying don't talk back, but no, 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 no. We don't follow rules. We don't need no stinking rules on this show. In fact, what we're encouraging is for you to do that very thing talk back every single day from noon until one. Listen, <laughs> there's a couple of things you know about me. One of them is I am about as stubborn as the day is long. And you have been on me since almost day one to open up more opportunity for you to have open line conversations on this show. You want the chance to get stuff off your chest. You want the chance to push my buttons or have a little debate. And I was like, I don't know, how many, do we have to do the web again? And I hummed and I hawed and I resisted. And then, not long before Christmas, I had a meeting here at the station with the powers that be who are way smarter than I am. And they also said, you know what, Farwell, you got all these different spots in the show all week where people can call in. We need to make it consistent. I'm like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. And they told me we need more of it. And I, oh, my gosh, more of it. What are you talking more of it? But you know what? Why not? Let's just do more of it. So, you know, every single day. Between noon and 1, it's the 12 o'clock talk back hour, a full hour of open lines. This is your conduit to the elected officials in this region who like to eavesdrop on the show to hear what's on your mind. This is the chance for you to get something off your chest or sing the praises of your neighbor who shovels your snow. I don't know. Whatever it is. Okay? Or just have a conversation. Maybe you're having a day and you want to just call up and say, Farwell, I'm having a day. Let's have a day together, okay? 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. It's the 12 o'clock talkback, and Grant, you are first.
13: Yeah, well, I... uh, yeah About your last individual, he's...
0: Yeah, the CEO salaries who make 246 times more than us.
13: Ridiculous. Uh...
0: What's ridiculous? The guest, or that the CEOs make so much?
13: The guest, and it matters to me. In my opinion, if I go to a grocery store and this duty bird is making making a ton of money, the CEO making a ton of money. Yeah, it makes makes a difference to me. I worked in the hospital, and it's disgusting of how much money they make. I bust my butt. Of of keeping the place clean, and these individuals get paid a ton of money. But
0: they do really, really important jobs, Grant. Like, could you do the job that they do? No, but... No, okay. But you still don't think they should be paid as much as they get paid?
13: Absolutely not. Especially sports celebrities. It's gotten way out of hand. Do you get $10.5 billion to be on the radio? No, my opinion if it was, if I ran the world, they would be getting paid an hourly wage,
0: all right, Grant, and I love when Grant brings the Doodly Birds to the show because then you know he's fired up, and listen, I do not get ten point five billion. I think I heard a B on there. I don't get ten point five million either, but I'm gonna say this about the job that I do. If I was better at it, I would make more money because I like an athlete, like a CEO, am working in a performance-based industry. My performance on this show determines how much advertising we get, the revenue that is generated from that advertising. Maybe I just need a better agent, which I don't have one of, by the way, although I think my beloved would make an excellent representative for me in my place of employment, but... The more advertising revenue on this show, the more I should be able to command by way of salary, right? Are you listening to me? I have this microphone and you're going to listen to every damn word that I say or something like that. Maybe I should just use this one from Donald Trump.
4: I'm president and you're not.
0: Anyway, uh, I, so I, can, I, I get the whole athlete thing the whole entertainer thing, like if you're going to buy the tickets to their show, if you're going to buy the tickets to their games, if they can generate that much in merchandise sales, et cetera, I don't know. Like, don't they deserve a cut of what they're helping you generate? Maybe. Just maybe. But I understand where you're coming from. And and the big piece to me in the report of CEO salaries is that it is a gap that continues to widen. Like, could we just say that CEOs could and or should make 100 times more than the average worker and stop it there. Only 100 times more. So their salaries go up in lockstep with our salaries instead of, you know, 100 times more 20 years ago, 150 times more 10 years ago, and 246 times more today. I don't know. I don't have the answer, but I think they're interesting things to talk about. George, over to you on the 12 o'clock back.
14: Yeah, Mike, I think you're right about the CEOs. No one's saying they shouldn't get their performance money. I mean, if the company does well. I think what's going on is the balance is off. These workers who are working hard could be making a little bit more. Maybe they could get a bonus if their store, their shop, whatever is making more money and maybe we don't see a 200 and something percentage extra for the CEOs but a little bit less and you know what they still make good money but that's not the reason why I called you my nephew works at the Bruce and I had a chance to talk to him about this he feels and I feel the same way why can't we go to Northern Ontario use one of the old shafts for the mining it's we're talking what's it called again the Canadian Shield? Yes, sir. Bury the waste in nice solid hard rock Canadian Shield. Do what you have to do to protect it. And I think that's the way to go. That's all I'm going to say and I'm going to listen to your
0: response. Thanks George, appreciate the call as always. You know, we have the had the opportunity this week, which is one of the things I love about this show to hear both sides of the Deep Geological Repository, the big burial site for our nuclear waste. Yesterday, we had on a guest from South Bruce Township near where it is proposed, one of the proposed locations for the burial of that nuclear waste. She's obviously very concerned, especially with the proximity to her property. Today, we heard from the Nuclear Waste Management Organization That shared the NWMO's perspective, the work that's been done with communities, etc. When we talked about this yesterday, we got a call from someone who said the exact same thing that George just said. Don't we already have abandoned mines in northern parts of Ontario that we could just repurpose for this? Perhaps we do. And, And maybe that's something we can explore further as we move through this year when a site will ultimately be Selected, my guess is that the existing mines aren 't deep enough. do we can we repurpose them and, and dig them deeper and add more caverns probably i I like to think anything is possible these days. The only thing that doesn 't seem possible to me is getting our hVAC right inside the building that I work i 'll tell you it has been so much fun. These last two days, you've probably heard me talk before about it getting so hot in here, I have to prop my door open just to get some kind of air circulation. The thermostat gets up to 26, 27 degrees some days. Poor Devin, the guy on the other side of the glass, is working in a little room where yesterday the temperature was 30.3 degrees. I, I don't know how you did that, man. I have no idea. Like, Did you sweat off a few pounds? Not that you need to, but Jeepers.
2: I could absolutely stand to, so in that <laughs> sense, I wasn't complaining, but yeah, I'm typically a hoodie guy, and I've not been able to get away with the hoodie, and like, I had on a sleep shirt yesterday, because I was like, well, I'll just put the hoodie on, Yeah, and then it's, you know, we're cool, and then I got in, and it was 30 degrees, and I'm like, well... Should have picked an actual shirt out, I guess.
0: I had my door propped yesterday. Our colleague Adele, who does the afternoon show on Chime 96.7, walked by. Doors open. She just shouts in for a chat. She had to prop her door open because her studio was so hot. (laughs) And our friends Robin and PJ on Country 106.7 this morning had their door propped open so they could get some of the heat From the rest of the building into their studio, which was so cold, they were doing the show in their outdoor winter coats. (laughs) That's where we're at. So I think anything is possible except, for whatever reason, getting the temperature set in this building. Can't win them all. I guess you can't. I guess you can't. (laughs) Uh, We'll go to Kyle next on the 12 o'clock talkback. Hey, Kyle.
2: Hey, first of all, I got to say Happy New Year, Mike, and everybody else.
0: Happy New Year, Kyle.
2: And the other thing is, is okay. Before I get to, uh, I just before I get to the, what i was gonna say, just want to say, CEOs also we put in a lot of money into our business. Like I sink a lot of money to invest to make sure I get a good return. So don't forget that. Like these guys don't also, you know, like that start companies probably put a lot of money into it for the first few years just to make a bit of a return or a livable wage. So just want to say that. Now the other thing I'm gonna say is, since it's so hot in your studio. I have an extra kiddie pool at my house. You get a rubber duck. What we'll do is we'll bring the kiddie pool up to the studio. We'll fill it with water, and then for the show, you do it and you bring your, um, you bring your bathing suit and you do the show in uh, in in the kiddie pool with a rubber duck and a beer in your hand. How about that?
0: Okay, so I like the idea of the beer, but you know I would be fired, right? Why? Well, because I well, can't drink on the job, Kyle.
2: Okay, well, there's now there's now non alcoholic <laughs> beer you can get.
0: I okay, so a zero percenter. Okay. Okay, an right. alcohol-free beer. And so you 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 like the image of me doing this show whilst sitting in a kiddie pool alongside a rubber duck.
2: I'm sure your lovely wife would, or your, your significant other. I'm just thinking about you two, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not about, not about me. I don't want to see that, but I'm sure there's some, I'm sure that, well, I don't know. Isn't? Are you still doing the show on TV? Because I'm on the road all the time, so I don't even know
3: anymore.
0: Uh, I had one of our friends email, Scott, thanks for emailing Mike at 570news.com. Yes, I am still doing the show on TV, but they do not restart from their holiday break until next Monday the 8th.
2: So now you've got time to do it now or uh-huh. unless uh, unless the TV comes back to me, just got to make sure we put uh, viewer discretion as advised. Right. Kyle, That's all you got to think. Yes.
0: Just work with me here for one second. OK,
2: I'm always with you, my friend. What's
0: up? What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone is now dumber for having listened to it.
2: All right. Well, all I got to say is
0: have fun sweating in a sweatbox. I tried my back my <laughs> friends. Have a good one. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate it. Have fun sweating in a sweatbox. I've been told that the studio gets so hot because I'm so full of hot air. I cannot deny this. I cannot. It's the twelve o'clock talkback hour on the Mike Farwell Show, City News Five Seventy. It is the 12 o'clock talkback Hour, where you get the chance to have your say. 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Paul, good afternoon. I thought that
9: last clip was only for
0: me. <laughs> I use it whenever I want to use it, so be very careful.
9: Yeah, I guess it's your right. The, uh, I was listening uh, close to the end of your show yesterday, and I see that you're uh, attempting to use your superpowers um, for good. The uh, you know you're going on about uh, we don't need 170 plus uh, radar uh, cameras, and you know
0: it, we don't though, right? We agree with that. Yeah, well,
9: you and I agree, but, you know, you're trying to use your superpowers in order to block that. (laughs) No, listen,
0: if I had superpowers, do you think I'd use them on that?
9: I'm also wondering, are you just using those superpowers in order to try and ensure that you win the bet?
0: No. I I don't have, first of all, I don't have superpowers. Second of all, if I did, do you think I'd waste them on photo radar? I don't know. In order to avoid eating your shoe, maybe. No, listen. Maybe. I did say. I did say. If by 2028 we have 175 speed cameras in this region, I will eat my shoe. I did say that. You're right. You keep reminding me. I was confident when I said that because I just don't see any way we we roll out the ramp up the program that quickly. But I've even come further back. I don't want any more. This camera nonsense is ridiculous.
9: Yeah, we're gonna uh, we're gonna have to agree on that. <laughs>
0: yeah.
9: but, you know a discussion with persons who shall remain anonymous. We were talking I don't know, since you've come back in the new years, you seem to have mellowed a wee bit. What? Yes, I honestly believe you are mellowed a wee bit. Me? Because yes, I don't hear you hanging up on people the way you should. So the way I, wanna, I should I wanna I wanna t- I wanna test something here.
0: Sorry, Paul, I just hung up on you. You want to tempt me like that? Like, honestly? Well, first of all, okay. If you, if, allow me to take a wee bit of a tangent for just a moment here. It's day two. Day freaking two. I've had a nine-day break from you knuckleheads. Of course I'm more patient. But also, honest to goodness gracious here, when is the last time... When is the last time I hung up on somebody who did not say the name of the team that shall not be named? That you know. That is the, the number one rule on this show. Thou shalt not name the, tame, the name. thou shalt not name the team that shall not be named. If you do, I hang up on you. I don't know who I should have hung up on yesterday, my first show back for the year. I would like to talk to Paul about it more, but I just hung up on him. And I did so with intent because I felt like I was being challenged. Challenged to exercise the power in my index finger. That's the button I use to either bring a call onto the show or hang up on a call. I'll bring Chris's call onto the show now. Hello, Chris.
9: Yeah, I'll use cameras. It <clears throat> seems like uh, Ottawa has uh, lent Waterloo Region their money printing machine. So... <laughs> Well, in talking about that, I read the um, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation outlook for 2024. It really got me going this morning when I'm looking at everything that they have there. Our April Fools, where our carbon tax is going up at the pump, plus I didn't realize we have another carbon tax that Trudeau put on last year. That's 17 cents per liter. So you know that in a half a case of beer, half of that is taxed. Three-quarters of a bottle of spirits is taxed. Like, what is going on here in this country? We're paying so much in tax that we actually need the federal government's money-printing machine here in Waterloo Region.
0: All right, Chris, I appreciate the call. Uh, We do have the federal government's money-printing machine here in the region. It's the photo radar program, right? 175 cameras, and they're going to generate so much revenue— that it really won't cost us anything, which is, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you right now, got some swamp land in a place called Florida, if you believe that for one second, There's, there's not a snowball's chance, because first of all, first of all, have we taken into account with that estimate, the number of these photo radar cameras that will be vandalized, I'm looking at you, Baden, I'm not. I'm not shaking. I'm not wagging my finger at you. <laughs> we know the camera at Sir Adam Back has been vandalized thrice already. So who's paying for that? The other thing about this is, if the program, and I, I'm adamant in my attempts to get the region to reverse course on this asinine idea of 175 speed cameras, but if the program and all 175 speed cameras is to roll out as planned, then there will be 33 people hired by our region to administer all of the tickets, right? I get it. And, and there will be enough revenue from those tickets to pay for those 33 people. Okay, now work with me here, though. Think about this. We're going to extend this out a little bit further, okay? The theory is that if we get tickets and have to pay money for going over the speed limit we're going to stop speeding. So if the program is actually successful and these 175 cameras slow us down, then the number of tickets issued is going to decrease rather dramatically, right? Because the cameras make us stop speeding. So who's paying for the 33 employees then? Hello? McFly? Hello? Oh, we are... Because it's not revenue neutral. Goodness. I shouldn't have to explain this to you. It's the Mike Farwell Show, the 12 o'clock talk back hour, City News 570. Got an email from Russell. Ah, Russell, I love you like a brother. He says, you'll forgive me. Oh, by the way, the emails come to mike at 570news.com. Email anytime. Uh, Tweet at Farwell underscore WR. Find us on Facebook, Facebook facebook.com slash the Mike Farwell Show. Instagram at Farwell underscore WR as well. Anyway, uh, to mike at 570news.com, Russell writes, you'll forgive me if I don't tune in right away anymore because Russell is a little bit upset that yesterday he did not hear the familiar music to start the show at 9 o'clock. Gone was Working Man by Rush. I did start the show yesterday with a Rush song, but it was closer to the heart. My cheesy way of just reminding you that, hey, that's where this show comes from, friend. It comes directly from my heart. I I put my heart... And my soul, if I had one, uh, my soul is kind of black. It's how I like my coffee. Black like my soul. But I put it into the show every day. And then today, the show started with Beautiful Day by U2. And so, yes, we we are tweaking, if you will, some of the sounds that you hear on this show. And I think now, the beginning of the show, every morning, just after the 9 a.m. news is going to be a little bit like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. You just never know what you're going to get. So, uh, listen, Russell, I-, I will forgive you, absolutely, if you don't tune in right away. But if you don't tune in right away, you, you just don't know what you're going to miss. Yeah, what What will the first song be tomorrow? That's the beauty of it. And by the way, I talked to Devin Robertson, the guy on the other side of the glass yesterday, and he's ready for all Request Fridays on this program. So maybe there's a song that you like and would like to hear, you know, 20 to 30 seconds of at some point during the show on Fridays. You should let us know that when you call in and Devin takes your call, say, hey, Dev, he, he's okay with Dev. Hey, Dev, I want to hear this song on All Request Friday, or send me an email, Mike at 570News.com. We'll fix you up, but good. We we have two other radio stations in this building that play music. We can find music, you know. And quite frankly, sometimes I think you'd rather that than hearing me drone on and on, right? It's the 12 o'clock talkback hour. If Doug Ford ever said, do you remember when Doug Ford, I am on such a tangent right now. Like it's just, it's squirrel. Do you remember when Doug Ford stood up in, in, in the provincial legislature and when Andrea Horvath was still the leader of the NDP and said it's like... A, how did he describe it? Fingernails on a chalkboard? He, he described her voice. It did not go over well. Did not go over well at all. If if he said that to me, I'm like, Doug, buddy, you're right. Like, uh, you're right. I, my voice, after a little while, can be just like fingernails on a chalkboard. We're buying hamburgers and hot dogs. i flipping. I want to come to that barbecue. Let's go. It's 12 o'clock talk back hour. 519-570-2545. Star 570 one eight hundred five seventy fifty seven fifteen. 570 5715 Andre, good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon, Mike. Um, so I got two things. <laughs> you do, eh? Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: Just just two, Andre? Just two?
3: I'll try. Oh,
0: you're going to try. Hey, Andre, guess what? What? I, I heard you call another radio show yesterday. Awesome. No, no. I Don't you think that hurts my heart a little bit? Closer to the heart? No, my heart. I have one, you know, and it hurts when you.
3: I know. I yeah. Can call back again I feel like
0: you're cheating on me.
3: Oh my goodness gracious! Never. Okay. Faithful to All right. Heart. All right. You are the best in what you do, but I really enjoyed uh, for the first time with. Uh, see, I don't even know his name. I don't Rob Snow.
9: Robbie. Robbie.
3: <laughs> but anyway, uh, the point is um, because you know they're rebuilding, but. Um, <laughs> Who's rebuilding? What are you talking about? The team we should not mention. Oh, Oh, my goodness. Um, So what I want to say is I also talked to – I'm not going to say his name. It's not important. But the team we should not mention, uh, they talked – when I talked, my favorite defense, I'll I'll say three of them in the NHL. One is, of course, Raymond Bork, one of the best. Two is – Scott Stevens, go Pauly, producer Pauly. Number one, Larry Robinson. Now, I did Do not Do you know, know that
0: both Larry Robinson and Scott Stevens played for the Kitchener Rangers?
3: That's what he told me, and I was like, what? Yeah, He's my favorite player when I was a kid. I used to, in St. estache Quebec, as a little boy, I would go in and see the old team we should not mention, and he was my favorite. And uh, when I talked about that, because you know me, I'm all over the place. And he's like, yeah, Kitchener Ranger guy, right, from Kitchener, blah, blah, blah. And because I, I go by the name uh, Lion, I always have, except um, for a long time now because I'm a father and I'm trying to be me. But uh, I just I just didn't know that, and uh, he was a Kitchener uh, Ranger. And they also talk about how good of uh, junior hockey we're, we're, we are. All right. And they talked about Philip Mishar. Andre. Andre. Um, Yes.
0: I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we've been going for two minutes and eighteen seconds now. I'm not even sure what your first point was, but I can I I, I, I want to yeah. just I, I want to explore a question here, yeah. if I, if I may. Lion, that is that like your given name? Is that your chosen
3: name? That's my k earned by the heart.
0: Your your what? I have
3: heart of a lion.
0: You have the heart of a lion. So because yes. when I met a relative of yours, she said she she called you Lion. So that's a name yes. you actually go by. Yes. Where does it come from?
3: Um from sports. Okay. I when I'm a type of guy that even if I lose, we lose 7-1, I always believe to come back until the fat lady sings at the end. I always had that heart of passion of it's never over till the fat lady sings at the end and that's my heart. Um I'm a type of guy that uh when I started to work out with no uh talent I could push, uh, 400 pounds when I was 175 pounds. It was very incredible and it's just my determination. Um, I, I lost that. Now I'm like the, the lying courage, you know, from, um, but anyway, I, I just want to say, Mike, that, um, Philip Machar, I did not know that, uh, he had seven points in the, uh, world junior. I'm very proud of him, and here he is with the Kitchener Rangers before he leaves again to the team we should not mention, and I'm honored that we have him uh, because of our GP and Kitchener Rangers, uh, Mike um, McKenzie, and uh, we're we're just amazing, and I told him about my passion with you because I lost my passion when Patrick Roy left for Colorado. Uh, I've, I've lost my hockey because I'm blind, I don't have that motivation no more, but now having my little ones, I'm finding it back again, especially through your eyes, Mike. I'm, and I want to thank you very much.
0: You're very welcome, my friend. You're very welcome. i gotta I gotta stop there and and move on, but listen, if if you want to lose your passion for hockey and lose your passion for hockey, but quick, well, all you have to do is cheer for the team that shall not be named because they stink. They stink as much of the stinkiest things you're ever going to want to smell. So that's why you lose your passion for hockey. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I got a great email earlier today. I want to give credit where it's due. Thank you, Harry, for sending the email to mike at 570news.com because Harry points out that he always enjoys the show, but we have a difference of opinion on something that is very controversial but I'm going to go here because it's the 12 o'clock talkback hour and I'm not afraid of anything. And Harry reminds me that our difference of opinion is on whether or not pizza should have pineapple. I know that you know because you're a smart person that the answer is a resounding yes. Of course it should. And I would like you to know, courtesy of Harry, who shared with me the link, that now one of the most and best-known pizza streets in the world capital of pizza, Naples, Italy, is now making its own Margarita con Ananas pizza, which is a pizza with pineapple on it. Right there in Naples, the pizza maestro himself, Gino Sorbillo, is making a pineapple pizza. Why? Because Gino knows what's what. Pineapple belongs on pizza. So even the Italians are catching up with the creation by the way from Chatham, Ontario. That's right. We originated it, we as in Canadians and more specifically Ontarians and even more specifically Chathamaroons? What do you call people from Chatham anyway? Chathamites? Chathamers? Chathamer. Hey, Chathamer. Anyway, that's where pineapple pizza came from. And now you know the rest of the story. They're making it in Naples, baby. It belongs. Finally, after our long fight, pineapple pizza belongs. Donna, good afternoon. Happy New Year, Mike. Happy New Year, my friend. Thank you.
5: I kind of like that chat of mites. What are we, ki- we Kitchenerites? We
0: are Kitchenerites, I do believe.
5: Hey, just a question for you this noon hour. You Thinking betcha. of the band Rush and your love of craft beer. Over the Christmas season, did you try the Henderson Brewing Company's Rush Beer?
0: Donna, no disrespect, but that (laughs) beer's been around for years. I tried it when it first came out. I'm still drinking it, baby.
5: Good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I thought over the Christmas season, I thought of you. So Happy New Year and look forward to calling in many times in 2024.
0: I look forward to hearing from you many times in 2024. Thanks, Donna. Have a great day. Yes, uh, Henderson Brewing out of Toronto makes a beer in a can that has the hemispheres logo on it it's it's a rush themed beer and of course I've, I've not only tried it once i've tried it multiple times and they put out a nice little gift set with four different cans uh, inside this rush themed beer it is uh, excellent excellent stuff one of the other things that I wanted to uh, bring to this 12 o'clock talkback segment today, because it is, it is rather notable. It was front page news on my Globe and Mail this morning. But if, if you missed it yesterday, uh, yet another president of a big school in the United States has tendered their resignation. First, it was the president of the University of Pennsylvania. And as of yesterday, it's Claudine Gay the now former president of Harvard, of all places. But all of this stems from the uh, committee hearings in the U.S. House that just, it was around uh, what I think we would describe as pro-Palestinian rallies on campus and the anti-Semitic rhetoric that many noted within those rallies. And the questions were being asked of university presidents, is this sort of thing allowed on your campuses or does it fall under the banner of hate speech? The president, the former president of the University of Pennsylvania, said it depended on the context. Here is Claudine Gay at those hearings responding as then president of Harvard.
11: Dr. Gay, a Harvard student calling for the mass murder of African Americans is not protected free speech at Harvard, correct? Our commitment to free speech. It's a yes or no question. Is that corrected? Is that okay for students to call for the mass murder of African Americans at Harvard? Is that protected free speech? Our commitment to free speech It's a yes or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard? It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, harassment, and intimidation. Does that speech not cross that barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel?
0: And this is what happens when you allow lawyers to craft your statements and they tell you to stick to these words and these words only when you appear before a House committee. Claudine Gay, a day after some further allegations surfaced about her having perhaps plagiarized parts of her dissertation, she has announced her resignation after only six months on the job at Harvard University. A big story indeed. We continue with the 12 o'clock talkback hour here on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. My buddy Mark sends me an email to Mike at 570news.com. He says, people from Chatham are called fifth wheels. Devin Robertson, the guy on the other side of the glass, finds that almost hilarious. I don't think he could speak right now. He's laughing so hard. Is that as insulting as it sounds? Is that what we're getting at here? Uh, anyway, that's what Mark would know. They're called fifth wheels, he tells me. so. Not Chathamites, not Chathamers. Chathamers, you Chathamers. Uh, we're Kitchenerites here in Kitchener, we are Cambridgeites in Cambridge, and we are Wilmartians in Wilmot, don't forget that, I made that one up. We are honestly though, Waterluvians in Waterloo, because you know, Waterloo's got to be Waterloo, oh it's uptown Waterloo, there's no downtown, no no, you're going uptown to Waterloo, well then, can I get some Grey Poupon while I'm there? But it's got to be a Waterluvian, it can't be a Waterlooan or a Waterlooite, nope, it's a Waterluvian. This is the 12 o'clock talk back. We do it every day from noon until 1 at 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. Grant, hello. Yes.
13: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what now? What are you laughing at me for?
13: I submitted something on your behalf because... Oh, I- dear.
0: Huh? Oh, dear. What did you submit on my behalf, and to whom did you you, submit it?
13: I think you would do such a wonderful job there for uh, next season for the World Juniors. I said, there's uh, Mike Farwell. He does the 570 News Talk, and he does the Rangers, and I think you should consider on him having you – of him doing the play-by-play – I think you, I, I think you, would love it, and I'm hoping that they're not going to say, like TSN said.
0: Who, is I, that who you asked? Is that who you t- submitted my name to? TSN.
13: To World News, yeah. Yeah. And but, last year I called up TSN and I said, Mike Farwell. and they said, Who's he? What do you mean, who is he?
0: Well, Grant, you're killing me here because you know, right? I know you know this. That that TSN. That's like the other, the other big, yeah. telemedia company, right? So I work for the big red machine, in yeah. Rogers, right? TSN is the big blue machine, yeah, yeah. So it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Grant, they're not gonna. I mean, I love, I love Gord Miller and the work that he does, and I, I love their production of the World Juniors, but, but they're not going to, they're not going to do that. It's like, it's like crossing streams and Ghostbusters. You can't do it. You think we should break down these competitive barriers and they should just let me call the games, eh?
13: Have you do it for 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 one one game w- one season one season. Yeah, yeah. Why
0: not? All right. Grant, listen, I appreciate you. I love you for it. It's very kind of you to even think that I would be qualified to walk amongst those greats and don those headsets. You did remind me of something though. And and I really would have look, I am uh, honest to goodness gracious, over the moon with how this whole career, I feel funny calling it that because I haven't worked a day in my life, but I, I'm over the moon at how it's all worked out. I i really am. I, I love being here with you every day from nine until one. I love walking into the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium and even Sudbury where I'm going this weekend uh, and calling hockey games. I mean, we had a game in Oshawa on New Year's Day and I'm not going to lie, getting up on New Year's morning and thinking, jeepers, creepers. Like, I'm to drive to Oshawa, the schwa today. But it was such an enjoyable game, and once you get to the rink, there's just something about it. I really do love junior hockey. I could not be, honestly, any happier professionally than I am, the way this has all worked out. Never in my wildest dreams, when I started at Conestoga College back in 1993, <laughs> did I think it would work out as well as it has. But and you might have known there was a butt coming for this along the way my grandmother bless grandma dorothy farwell's heart was such a big leafs fan that i would have i would have really liked the opportunity and i actually thought about it for a minute i really did to just beg boro steel ask if i could just one time i've got a little bit of experience right calling hockey games could i just do one leafs game so grandma dorothy would be super proud of her grandson it didn't work. I never even asked. I mean, why would I? But I, I'm not going to, it's not a regret. It's just something that Grant made me think of. I never did ask for the favor, should it, could it have ever been granted, but nonetheless, and and Grandma Dorothy is, of course, no longer with us, but it doesn't make her any less of a Leafs fan. Oh, did she love her Toronto Maple Leafs. We had a call earlier in our talk back hour from uh, Chris, who was lamenting all of the taxes we pay, and I get it. And he brought up the amount of taxation on alcohol, goodness gracious me, don't even get me started. I've often joked that we should generate, we must, in fact, generate enough revenue from the LCBO on any given Saturday to pay all of the things we need to pay for in this province. It's such a busy place. I, I had to chuckle when I got the release from the press office of the LCBO under the headline, "Kick Off 2024 with LCBO's Lighter choices. So what you're doing here, LCBO, and full credit, because the Lickbo knows that many of us decide to go in the direction of a dry January. Not only do we want to atone from our sins over the holidays, but yeah, maybe the calorie count's going to go down a little bit. So they're going to be right there in our face to remind us that hey, you might be going dry or might be cutting back on the calories. So let us still offer you some lighter choices at your local LCBO so that we can continue to collect all of the taxes on all of the purchases of all of the alcohol that you make. Kick off 2024 with LCBO's lighter choices. Good timing. I can see the method to the madness. I can see right through you, LCBO. I surely can. All right, we have reached that time of the day where it's time to say goodbye. But don't worry, Rob Snow, and now you know... Just minutes away, Rob will entertain you from 1 until 3 following the next update from the City News Center. As I look ahead at our show tomorrow, boy, oh, boy, the international student story continues to gain steam. Do you know how many students have been accepted to schools but can't get into the country? Oh, by the way, where should we put the new hospital in this region? And can small acts of joy increase our overall happiness. All of that, plus another 12 o'clock talkback hour on the way with the show tomorrow. Devin Robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Bye for now.